0: welcome to the big picture a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only america but right here in our own backyard of illinois it's showtime folks the big picture is on wcpt a20 and now here's your host edwin eisentrath
1: hello again happy saturday we are uh, in the last month of the year and i'm beginning to think about the year and what we've learned and what we need to take with us. Um, Let me just share some of that with you as we get started today, because look, this was another year of insurrection. I say that, but you have to remember that January 6th was just one day. This MAGA crowd has never stopped trying to tear us down. And 2023, will be remembered as the year the GOP House majority elevated an unrepentant election denier, the architect of the legal strategy to disenfranchise voters in swing states, to be its speaker. It was a disgrace. It will also be remembered as you know. Predictions are hard, but I'm pretty sure of this: as the year the GOP base opted not to disqualify the multiply indicted Mr. Trump. Not to disqualify him for saying that he'll build concentration camps and fill the government with willing attack dogs and use that government to punish his enemies. Nope. Instead, the Republicans chose to make him their front runner. It's disgraceful. It'll also be remembered this way. Just as Lincoln did during the Civil War, President Biden had to deal with insurrection and he had to govern simultaneously. Not easy to do. In a year, um, he's accomplished a lot. You know, inflation is down, the economy is much better. He has managed enormous global crises in a way that's kept them from expanding into true disasters. Um, and this was a year that saw ordinary Americans take up the fight for our democracy to organize and to win. Really remarkable reflecting on all of that and what this year um, has been, I think there are a bunch of lessons we can learn, important ones. The first, and this is really for you guys listening, because I hear this when you call in, don't panic. Don't panic. We've done this before. There are always people, usually people with power, who want us to believe that humans are inherently unequal and that their group is always supposed to be in charge. The British monarchy in the 1700s, thus slave power in the 1800s, corporate robber barons in the 1900s. Oh my gosh. And now uh, a MAGA aligned with big polluters and a particular brand of Christian nationalism. The particulars are new. The threat is old. Don't panic. Two, our real history is much more powerful than their fake history. Going all the way back to the founding of this nation, Americans have fought to realize the idea that each of us is as important as any other and that together we can determine our own destiny. That's the arc of our history, the real arc of our history. Experts in fascism teach us that you know, the ones who don't believe that we're all created equal, they're always trying to foist a dishonest historical narrative on the rest of us. That narrative is always the same. Some people are better than others, they say. Some are inferior to others, and a few get to make the choices for the rest. And in this false narrative, the social order that they talk about flows naturally from cultural heritage and religion. So today's MAGA crowd is trying to sell us their latest version of this, I almost said something I can't say, this rubbish. Just, just, just look at the efforts to reshape school curricula or to ban books or to politicize schools by adopting courses from places like Prager U and Bob Jones University and Hillside College. I've looked at that stuff. It's awful. So long as we remember our real history rather than their fake one, we're less vulnerable to authoritarian power grabs. Three, the present is better than the past. It's better than the past. The next time a young person says, Oh my gosh, I'm living in the worst time, please ask them to live without their phone for a few days or the internet and see what happens. Today, more Americans are working, more have health care, more have access to education than ever before. And look, it's certainly true there are problems. I mean, for at least two generations now, our economy has favored the fabulously wealthiest over all the rest of us. But now, during the Biden administration, and especially when Democrats controlled Congress, these biases are finally being addressed. They don't get fixed overnight, but we're moving in the right direction. The present is better than the past. Four. None of our progress, none of it in this country came easily. And, you know, if you get discouraged today, do you think it, think about this, when you think it was easy for women to get to vote, it was not. Or to end slavery, it took a war. Or to enfranchise the formerly enslaved, it took another hundred years. Do you think it was easy to create the five-day work week and minimum wages? None of it was easy. The folks on the here's why the folks on the wrong side of every one of those issues, just like the folks on the wrong side today, they're Americans too. Our task has always been hard because the biggest obstacles we have to overcome are the ones we create for ourselves. It was never easy. Fifth, and it's related to the fourth one, you're more powerful than you think. So if you start to melt down over a bad poll, ask yourself what you owe to the people who fought for and won the freedoms you now enjoy. Ask yourself what you owe to the people who will come later. And then look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and you will see someone just as capable as earlier Americans of pushing back against the powers that have always tried to drag us down. Six, also related, setbacks, they're going to happen But they're irrelevant. Oh my gosh! You get a bad poll and people cry. Are you going to work less hard because of a bad poll to save this democracy? Are you going to slack off because we had a good one? No, they don't matter at all. You're going to work as hard as you can until we are done and we're victorious. And the seventh one, and my, you know, maybe my favorite in the list. I think Americans are inspiring. Yeah a good portion of us has fallen into the MAGA trap. But you know what? When they tried to take over school boards, the great majority of Americans stopped them. When they tried to steal the election, remember that? Again, the majority stopped them. When MAGA leaders desperately try to paint America as worse off than it once was, oops, because Americans keep moving us forward. I mean, really? We came out of COVID with the strongest economy in the world. And we are transforming it now to be greener and to reward workers in ways we haven't seen in generations. Can't make that look bad. So finally, look forward with optimism. Look, I know people are frightened and, you know, and we should call Donald Trump and this attempt to destroy everybody's rights, whether it's abortion rights, um, Civil rights, voting rights, um, uh, really anything can make whim to him to run a government as a dictator. That's just crazy and scary, right? But we, we have cause for optimism because like Americans don't believe in that. And we want to clean up the workings of government to make it more responsive and less corrupt. We are eager to restore to women the right to make their own reproductive decisions. We expect to reward work and workers, not just money and investors. We demand an end to the arms race on our streets. We are determined to control climate change. We see just ahead of us the most inclusive democracy the world has ever seen. The MAGA crowd can't help us achieve any of these things, not one of them. They are out of step with our aspirations, just as they are out of step with our history, which is where we will soon find them. Be optimistic. Anyway, that's my thoughts um, as we wrap up this great year. Now we have a pretty uh, fun show for you. A little bit of it I had to tape yesterday because it being December, people are you know they've got other things planned. So um, uh, stay with us. I have a fabulous conversation coming up with Kira Butler uh, uh, from uh, Mother Jones. I think you're going to like it a lot. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to the Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Kira Butler is a senior editor at Mother Jones. The last time we spoke, she took us on a deep dive into Moms for Liberty. Since then, she's done really fabulous reporting about, you know, MAGA's deleterious influence on public health and other topics that I want to talk to her about today. Um, But, you know, it turns out Moms for Liberty is back in the news, and this time because of a sexual assault charge against the head of the Florida GOP. Kira, what's going on?
2: Well, this is a story that broke yesterday, um, and it was an investigative outlet in Florida called the Florida Center for Government Accountability that broke this story. Um, And basically the allegations, and I want to be very careful about how I characterize this because uh, they really are just allegations at this point. Um, The allegations are that uh, Christian Ziegler, who is the head of uh, the Florida GOP, um, that he uh, sexually assaulted um, a woman who was involved in a longstanding threesome menage a trois uh, with him and his wife, who is Bridget Ziegler, um, who is uh, a founder of Moms for Liberty, um, served on the Sarasota County School Board for a number of years, um, and currently holds a position as at, at the Leadership Institute, where she does uh, training around school board elections. I, I, um, I, this, know this is, where is a difficult it.
1: topic. It's a difficult topic for me because I don't care if if Mr. And Ziegler and his bride want to have sex together, or with three other people, or with one other person. I do care. Um, if any of it's coerced and it's sexual assault. Um But this is what they do privately, I don't care about. But the hypocrisy of banning books that talk about sex, the hypocrisy of claiming sort of a very traditional, um, you know, family moral high ground while selling this snake oil lies to everybody about who you are and what you're doing is just damaging to our... um to our sense of reality, and to our ability to uh, function as a democracy. So I, I guess their private tragedy um, is actual news. I mean, am I wrong about that?
2: I, I mean, I, I'm with you on the fact that, you know, whatever people do in their sex lives, as long as it's consensual, is really not news. Um, but in this case, I think that part that is newsworthy, the main part that's newsworthy, of course, is the allegation of sexual assault, which um, I understand is being investigated by the police. And um, I think there's another allegation that uh, they videotaped um, these encounters, perhaps without the permission of the third member of the couple. Um, So I think that allegation is probably also newsworthy. Um, The other, yeah, the other kind of great is um, just what you were mentioning about hypocrisy. You know, I guess if you, if you kind of by definition, like what they were doing was uh, bisexual at the very least. And this is a group moms for liberty that has been actively hostile to people who are trying to implement curriculum and stock classroom libraries with books that are inclusive of lgbtq identity so that i think you know that is the other part that is potentially newsworthy
1: so what's really what, what this story tells me it is something well i don't know if it tells me this it, it plays to my own sense, which may be a prejudice. I, so I want to say it out loud. But I think Miles for Liberty is a fraud. I've always thought that. I thought it's about politics. It has nothing to do with the content of any of the books that they want to ban, nothing to do with the content of any of the curriculum they want. They see it by looking at polls as a way to divide us up, weaken the democracy and take power. Um, and that's how they're funded, after all, by political Operators. That's why the chairman of a Florida Democratic Party um, is related to this effort that's supposedly not partisan, but about protecting the children. I think it's a fraud, and I, I think this this story confirms that feeling for me. Um, and so, I want to ask you: Is that just my prejudice because I don't like them, or 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 is it real? Well, I,
2: you know. I think we have to be very careful about how we're using the word fraud, right? Like I wouldn't use that word because there are legal implications, right? So that would I'm sorry, imply. I don't that
1: mean legal fraud. Yeah, you're you're absolutely. Yeah, right. I, I just mean yeah. they're, they're they're about politics and power, not about protecting our children from content.
2: I think that there is evidence to support that. Like you were saying, you know, these are this is a group that their conferences. We don't know that much about their uh, their funding overall because they are a five hundred one c four. Um, and in Florida, those groups don't have to make their finances public, but we do know who sponsors their conferences, and um, two of the main sponsors are the Leadership Institute, which is this conservative training group that Bridget Ziegler works for, and uh, Heritage Foundation, which of course is a um, conservative think tank, a very kind of old and venerable conservative think tank, Um, and and very far um, to the right in its in its views. Um, So, you know, and I I do think, you know, when you look at their track record um, in this last election, uh, Moms for Liberty and other parents' rights groups uh, ran candidates that did not do as well as they had over the past year, year and a half. But before that, um, this was a group that was that had been very successful in propelling those conservative candidates to victory in school board races. And I do think that uh, getting people to be engaged in those local races is a very smart strategy to kind of boost uh, political engagement in um, in the party that, that you support. Um, and it's, it, it is a strategy that, uh, that Democrats uh, perhaps have ignored um, to their own detriment. And so this this is a group that kind of swooped in and saw these school board races, these library board races, um, as an opportunity uh, to kind of uh, get people engaged in conservative politics.
1: I think you're absolutely right. But here's the funny thing about democracy: is when 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 um, one partisan actor does something, it creates a reaction. So um, Often that reaction, sometimes that reaction is, wow, that was pretty good. I like what they've done. They passed this infrastructure bill. I kind of like that. Um, Or it's, hey, they banned abortion. We really don't like that. We're going to show up to vote. Or in this case, Moms for Liberty thought they were going to wake up their base, and they did. But the reaction amongst regular moms and dads and, you know, People who are involved in their kids' education is you are not hijacking my school for your political agenda, and that's why they got their clock cleaned all over the country. I mean, Iowa's not a blue state, and Monster Liberty got slaughtered
3: there.
1: Um, so uh, you're right to point out that it was a wake up strategy for their base, but their base is not a majority, and the majority didn't like it.
2: Yeah, I think I, I think. I, you know, it's probably early to say whether this last election was uh, reflective of a, a kind of a, um, a change in the, in the, in political sentiment more broadly. Um, but, you know, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, people, uh, perceived some of what these parents' rights groups, including Moms for Liberty, to be doing, um, did not resonate. Uh, with with what they wanted for their for their schools for their children. Yeah.
1: Um going back to this uh appalling story. Um, so the connection to Moms for Liberty is clear and it it clearly tarnishes what w- what they say they are. It adds another layer of mud on top of it. Does it impact the Florida Republican Party in any way?
2: Um I think that's a good Question. And and I don't I don't think at least last I looked, no statements had been issued or anything like that. Um, But it is most certainly a bad look for Christian Ziegler. Um, What ends up happening to him, whether it's more of a slap on the wrist or whether it's, you know, that he is um, forced to resign from this position. I, I don't I don't know yet.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll uh, unfortunately follow this horrible story. Um, let, let, let's let's move on to something else because there's only so much of that kind of drivel that I can take. Um, you you wrote this really fabulous story about the decline in vaccination rates, and I think everybody needs to read it. Um, But before you dive into it, into what you found, I think it's worth just remind everybody about some of the concepts we need to understand this piece. In particular, uh, tell us about herd immunity and how it works.
2: Sure. So herd immunity is uh, basically the idea is that a certain percentage of the population needs to be immune to a given infectious disease in order to prevent widespread outbreaks of that disease. And a, kind of a key point that I think gets lost in many discussions of herd immunity is that it differs between diseases. So uh, measles, for example, you need um, a fairly high rate of uh, of immunity within a population. I I, I want to say it's above 95%, but I'm not, I don't remember exactly what, other other diseases, it's lower, um, but it you know it's really disease dependent. So that's herd immunity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so getting vaccinated doesn't just protect the individual against the vaccine; it protects the entire population by denying a pathogen a reservoir of bodies where that pathogen can multiply and mutate. And the 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 different rates you're talking about has to do with how easily people can, um, uh, how fast these pathogens spread. So COVID required a very high herd immunity um, to slow down. The
2: the other concept that I think it's important to explain here is that there are also different um, effectiveness rates of of vaccines, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, at first, with the COVID vaccine, um, it appeared that it was, you know, 90, above 90 percent effective at stopping transmission. Um, but with the more recent strains, we now know that it's not as effective at stopping transmission as we once thought. Um, we still know it has many other benefits. You know, uh, it's it's been proven many, many times. makes it less lethal, for one. <laughs> it makes, right. It makes it less, less lethal. And yeah. it is likely that it also reduces transmission. It's just, you know, not perfect. Um, yep. Another vaccine that works like that is the flu vaccine. Um, yep. You know we, we know that it's not perfect. We know that a certain number of people will still get the flu, even if they get vaccinated, but that it will likely make the disease milder and that it does overall uh, help prevent transmission, even if it doesn't on an individual basis. But other vaccines... Right. Uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine uh, is highly effective. The um, vaccines that prevent diseases like polio, tetanus, all of these are highly effective vaccines.
1: Okay. So with that background, could you introduce us to Larry Cook?
2: Uh, yes, Larry Cook. So um, Larry Cook, uh, he is a guy who was actually most active in the anti-vaccine movement right before and in the early days of uh, the pandemic. So he had this um, website called Medical Freedom Patriots. And in 2020, um, I wrote a piece that had to do with kind of the uh, strategy among anti-vaccine activists to court um, People on the right, because they realized that people on the, on the left were more and more in favor of vaccination and of public health measures. Um, so uh, he said on his, I'm, I'm going to read you a few quotes from his website from 2020. He said the Democrats are actually the ones pushing the vaccine mandate agenda, um, and he said that his target demographic was pro Republican, pro President Trump, and QAnon friendly. So he really laid out the strategy of targeting um, very far-right uh, conservatives um, and recruiting them to be part of the anti-vaccination movement.
1: Yeah, I, just between us, I can't call these people conservative. There's nothing about our history they want to conserve. There was radical a bunch of, of Americans as we've ever had. Um, uh accepting all kinds of crazy and considering it, you know, new and important isn't what anybody used to think of as conservative for sure. Um, Right. Yeah. Okay. So Larry Cook says, Hey, I got it. We can, we can, we can go to people who are susceptible to, you know, QAnon conspiracies and spread Uh, vaccine conspiracies, and they're likely to be Republicans, and they're likely to support uh, President Trump. And that was just as the pandemic was starting.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: Boy, that's terrible. I mean, that that explains, I mean, there are, I don't know, 800,000 extra dead people because that was allowed to spread. That's really terrible.
2: Yeah, I, and I don't I don't want to, you know, overstate the importance of Larry Cook. You know, he did have a lot of followers, but he sort of faded into the background. Um well,
1: Donald his, Trump has was, a bigger had a bigger megaphone.
2: <laughs> yes, although Donald Trump at first was very pro vaccine. He, yep. you know, he he wrote about the COVID vaccines as kind of a um major accomplishment of his administration. And they were and and they were. But at the same time, you had this kind of uh, pre-existing group of libertarians who had always opposed vaccination because they considered it to be government overreach. Um, and then, you know, you had the anti-mask folks who kind of cropped up and um, And, you know, found a political identity on the right. And that sort of segued very naturally into um, anti-vaccine once the vaccines were available. So, yes, people like Larry Cook uh, were influential. um, But, you know, you also had these kind of other routes by which uh, anti-vaccine activists recruited people on the right and by which people who We're not necessarily against vaccines before COVID found themselves then opposing vaccines.
1: So fast forward to today, what's happening with, I mean, vaccinations are required for kids to go to school in almost every state, in every state, I think, um, because it's like undeniably beneficial to the whole society, not just to the individuals. Uh, so, so what's happened to vaccinations?
2: Yeah, I just wanted to to make a quick note on that, that you're right, that vaccinations are required for school in every state, but uh, the rules differ from state to state about how you can get out of that requirement. Um, in some states, you can't get out of the requirement. In some states, you need um, a medical medical excuse. In some states, they of a religious or ideological excuse. So, um, so, and that that will be important for um, what I'm going to explain about what has happened. But I wanted to start by saying also that um, in 2021, when it became clear that the anti-mask mm-hmm. folks um, had also started uh, rallying behind anti-vaccine causes, the anti-vaccine groups. Um, I called up a a prominent um, medical group and I asked them, are you worried that uh, anti-COVID vaccine sentiment is going to turn into anti-vaccine sentiment in general? That these folks who are against the COVID vaccines are going to be drawn into some of the more kind of conspiratorial corners of um, uh, of this world and that they're going to start opposing these highly effective routine childhood vaccinations, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, tetanus, etc And that this medical group that I talked to said, no, 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 we're not worried about that. That, you know, people, parents are worried about COVID vaccines because these vaccines are new and they're, you know, new MRNA technology. And they just have questions about that. Fine. It says, great. Um, but you know, I had I had my doubts. Um, and sure enough, last year, Florida uh, began to see declining vaccination rates in routine childhood immunizations. And uh, about, I want to say, eight months or so after that, um, the latest national uh, vaccination figures came out, and that was just last month. Uh, yeah, just last month. November 15th was when I wrote Pete. Um And uh, so the percentage of kindergartners who are fully vaccinated declined from 95% in the 2020, 2020 to 2021 school year to 93% in 2021 to 2022. Um, that might not sound like a lot. Um, the decline of two percentage points, but it's below pre-pandemic levels. And uh, remember when I was talking about the herd immunity, these percentage points really matter when you're talking about herd immunity. The difference of a few percentage points can really make a big difference. Um, The other thing that happened is that requests for exemptions increased in 41 states. And in 10 states, more than 5% of parents made those requests. Now that is really significant um again because of that herd immunity.
1: The story that you told it about um how you checked before was this was just beginning with uh, a medical group to get to sort of take their temperature about how worried they are. Um and you wrote about this in your piece. It's one of the reasons why you're such a wonderful writer. You you um don't just tell the story, you tell the you 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 tell the story and you talk about the story in such an interesting way with such a, uh, you know, sort of diverse and informed set of voices. It's one of the reasons why I like reading your stuff.
2: Oh, thanks. Um, so I found a little bit of information about, so I'm looking at something now that all of the the 10 states were in the West and the Midwest, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, The state that had the highest uh, percentage of vaccination um, exemption requests was uh, 12% 12 in Idaho.
1: Yeah. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, Idaho. I'm I'm surprised Louisiana isn't on the list, frankly, or Florida, given the way the governor um, has talked about vaccines. So um, uh, it's just America. One of the other lessons we always learn is that this is a more complicated and interesting country than we think.
2: That's right, that's right um you know I think some of those states uh in the um upper upper midwest to west um, have very strong libertarian communities, um, and that could be well
1: yep okay so, so um so we see vaccination rates come down, putting us uh, at a bit of danger what what is there a response to this from CDC or from uh, state public health officials or from the same medical folks you talked to in the beginning
2: um, I, you know CDC has issued um, statements about this and they are they're very concerned um, but I think that you know what they are battling right now is really an epidemic of Misinformation, um, And it's, you know, as we've seen over the last three years, it's incredibly hard to kind of uh, put these put this misinformation and disinformation back into that Pandora's box. So, you know, I think what a lot of public health officials are hoping is that this will be a wake up call um, for public health agencies to invest a lot more in studying uh, how people uh, become kind of radicalized in anti-vaccine communities and figuring out the best ways to uh, combat that misinformation.
1: Um, Folks like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. aren't helping.
2: No, we do have some high-profile people who are actively spreading this anti-vaccine disinformation, and RFK Jr., who is running for president and is the chair of children's health defense, one of the largest anti-vaccine groups. Um, he is, he's one of those people. Um, he will, he will say, and he has said many times in interviews with, um, you know, various outlets, he said that he's not anti-vaccine, that he's never been anti-vaccine, but, uh, there, there are ample, um, instances where he has espoused uh, anti-vaccine views. Um, He said in an interview, um, I think maybe a year or two ago, I see somebody on a hiking trail carrying a little baby, and I say to him, better not get them vaccinated. I don't know how you could possibly spin that as not being anti-vaccine.
1: Yeah, or chairing the board of a huge anti-vax group.
4: I mean,
2: right. Yeah. Is that he? It's not anti-vax. It's just you know he wants transparency. He says children's health defense is not anti-vax, but um, I, I think that you know that that strains um, credulity.
1: Okay, so just I want everybody listening to understand this concept of herd immunity and how important it is because you may think it doesn't matter. You're an adult. You don't care about a parent saying their kid doesn't need to be vaccinated in the school down the street. But creating reservoirs for pathogens to flourish means that those pathogens uh, mutate, that the vaccinations you got 30 years ago might not work again. Um, this is how huge public health emergencies happen and how... how You know, literally millions of people can can we can have another kinds of pandemic if we ignore what we've learned about medicine and science um, and public health. It's just crazy. You might as well tear up your school systems. I mean, your your uh, sewer systems and have everybody get cholera again. It's just um, unimaginable that we wouldn't invest and make this small sacrifice. That one second of oh my gosh, there's a needle. It really doesn't feel too comfortable that that in order to protect everybody in the country seems completely selfish and insane to me.
2: I think there are two things to say about that. One is that uh, the other thing about this is, and we saw this in COVID, uh, is that the people who are usually the most vulnerable to infectious disease outbreaks are people who are in um, disadvantaged communities. Uh, These are people who are living in, um, you know, multifamily homes with a lot of people in one space that sort of, those are um, the conditions where infectious disease can spread. So, you know, this is kind of an equity issue, right? It's, um, you know, infectious disease is is not going to, um, the outbreaks are not going to attack everybody fully. So that's one point. The other point, I think... uh, is related and important, and it's that there are good reasons that people have doubts about vaccines. There, in certain communities and Black and Brown communities in particular, there is a history of the medical establishment not treating them well, and there are good reasons for uh, those groups to be distrustful. Um, this again is another reason that uh, we have to invest in um, information infrastructure um, so that we can make sure that everybody is informed and has their questions answered about vaccines. Um, Is nobody ever injured by vaccines? No, that's why we have vaccine support. Um, There are risks of vaccinations, but helping people understand the risk benefit analysis, I think is crucial here. Um RFK Jr., uh, his group, Children's Health Defense, has kind of exploited this um, this distrust among black and brown communities of the medical system uh, with a documentary that he made that claimed that vaccines were um, unfairly uh, targeting uh, these communities and that they were like medical experimentation. Um, the movie is called... Medical racism, the new apartheid. Um, and among the many inaccurate claims in this film is that black children have more robust immune responses and that they're therefore being overdosed with certain vaccines. This is absolutely not true. It has no basis in scientific facts whatsoever. And it is a cynical uh Racist lie. Racist yeah, it's lie. A, yeah. It, it is racist lie.
1: Um, but but here we, we did in covid i think there was an enormous effort to um, overcome those um historic doubts in uh, particularly the black community about vaccines and the medical community i mean i i i know um Black leaders went all over the place talking to people about these vaccines and how important they were and I think the vaccination rates amongst black americans were um on par with everybody else by the time we were done with uh first round of covid uh i
2: i'm not i i i don't have that stat in front of me okay. i i if you're if you're saying that and but i do know that you're right, that there were um, it, leaders in the black church, that there are black politicians. Yeah. Who really
1: I mean, that's the that kind of that, outreach you were talking about. Right. So I, I, I raise it to say we are capable of doing this and we're capable of sustaining it. And we need to for people's health. Absolutely. All right. Um, really interesting story. So please, everybody listening, it's a, a fascinating and uh, sobering read, go to Mother Jones and find it. Um, You have another story I want to talk about. Um, This was um, terrifically sad. It was about the collapse of, you know, some mom's groups on Facebook because of their inability to manage the passions around the tragedy in Israel and Gaza. Um, Right. And I just found that just so sad. Talk about that.
2: Uh, Yeah, so this was, you know, it it was an interesting story for me to report because often I'm writing fights between the two extreme sides of um, the political spectrum. This story was really about uh, groups on the left. It was about kind of this this divide in in these uh, groups and progressive enclaves um, in the country uh, over um, the Israel-Hamas war. Um, and what you really saw in these groups were uh, people who were feeling frustrated, feeling sad, and using these groups that are usually about like, hey, can you recommend a pediatrician? Um, how do you like this school? Uh, using these groups to kind of um, explore their feelings and vet their frustrations and also to take out their frustration, and and hostile ways with their fellow group members. Um, And uh, the moderators that I spoke to described it as the most challenging time that they've ever ever navigated in these groups, including COVID. Um, During COVID, you know, the, the groups, the Facebook parents groups that I wrote about that were melting down were groups that were politically mixed. So you had, it was kind of right against left, like, you know, so many things in our country. But this was um, kind of left versus left, um, which was new territory for many of these groups.
1: And I think you said the ones that were most successful in handling it just banned any of this discussion.
2: That's right. Yeah, they, they sort of all came to the same conclusion, all of the groups that I talked well, not exactly the same conclusion. Some said, you know, you can't talk about it at all. And some other people said, you know, all you can do is, you know, if there's an event, then you can post the details of, of the event, but no discussion about it. People, you know, turned off comments. But, um, you know, it really, it seemed like there was, there was not going to be a resolution to this. People were not going to talk about this in a way that was constructive. People were tearing each other down. Um, and actually, you know, I, What I thought was interesting um, was that the New York Times, um, they followed up with a group in Atlanta where two of the members were kind of on, on opposite sides of this debate, and these two members had decided to meet up in real life and, you know, figure out whether they could find any common ground. And the conclusion of that piece in the New York Times was really that these two women, left that encounter not feeling like they had gotten any closer to um, to convincing the other one or even to making the other one understand their point of view.
1: Yeah, yeah I find it so sad. Um, and I think it is it certainly speaks to how divisive and emotional and um, painful what's going on over in that part of the world is. But it but it also speaks to our inability in this country to talk about things that are difficult with each other in ways that um, um, respect each other's humanity. I mean, and I know in this particular issue, I have relatives who live in Israel. I mean, you know, and 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 I have a business partner for many, many years who's Palestinian. And um, I. so far, we've managed this hurdle by acknowledging, you know, all of the things that need to be acknowledged, including where there are differences, but all of the things to be acknowledged. But it's terrifically hard. And, it, and, and the expectation that everybody will feel what you feel. Um, and if they don't, they're somehow, um, you're not hurt or you're an enemy. That's really dangerous. I mean it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation about how we tear ourselves apart. This is um this is a skill we need to have.
2: It is, but I, I think, you know, one point that I want to make, um i talked to uh an assistant professor at the University of Maryland College of Information Studies. Um, This guy, his name is Cody Buntain, and he researches response to crises on social media and also how the platforms themselves respond to this. And what he was saying is that social media platforms actually reinforce the polarizing dynamic. Um, Platforms like Facebook will push content that gets a lot of engagement. And people tend to engage more with content that's emotionally charged. So there's a way in which, um, yes, we do need to get better at having these discussions um, and and having them respectfully. But um, social media platforms are incentivizing us not to. <laughs> um, I agree with that.
1: Just- totally agree with that. Absolutely, um, and that's true whether we're talking about COVID or. Palestine, Gaza, Israel, or uh, uh, elections and politics, right? uh, Anger and rage and divisiveness and outrage um, thrives on social media, always has, even when it was social media was just gossip. right. Right. That's
2: right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, again, I, uh, I thought it was a sad read, but a really important one. And I urge folks to find Kira's work. It's really um, uh, important. Um, and about finding your work, I have one more topic, if you stay with me for a little longer. Um, we're wrapping up, you know, a pretty impactful year in our country. Um, one of the uh, areas in our life that has been impacted is journalism. Um, It's been a painful few years, and this one was no exception. Local newspapers are closing local news in many places. The reality affirming local news is disappearing. National news is, you know, a lot of it is moving to edges um, to capture an audience. Um, Talk about the importance of uh, news outlets like Mother Jones and the work that you do in the in the in the world of journalism and democracy that we find ourselves.
2: Well, all I can really say is that journalism is essential for a functioning democracy. And uh, my colleagues um, are devoted. They, they work every day um, to shine a light on the issues that people need to know about in order to um, make their decisions at the ballot boxes. Um, You know, this is a a very, as you were saying, this is a very tough media landscape. I feel so lucky to be able to do this job at an organization like Mother Jones. Mother Jones has been doing this work um, for decades. And uh, as we see other media organizations around us that are structured differently um, collapse and, you know, do layoffs, Um, I feel extremely fortunate that Mother Jones, um, exists as a nonprofit and that we have, uh, we, we exist because of, uh, generous supporters, um, who believe that our work is important. Um, so, you know, I would be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to urge you to visit mother Jones. Um, and if you like what you see, then, um, it's easy to donate, subscribe, et cetera.
1: Yeah. And I urge everybody to take that look because it's important reporting that goes on and has for years at mother Jones. Hey, um, um, all right. Uh, plans for the new year. Do you get to take a bit of a rest?
2: Well, I'm taking some, some days off to be with my kids over the holidays. Um, But as of, I don't know, January 2nd or something, I'll be back up and running.
1: Yes. And next year is going to be a year for the record books. We either take back our democracy or we don't. And there'll be an enormous amount to write about. And there'll be an even bigger amount of disinformation and misinformation that we're
2: going to have to counter. It's true. You know, I think all of us at Mother John's are kind of looking toward the next year with trepidation and trying to get reserves for what will be a very interesting, but perhaps exhausting election season. Um,
1: I want to say this to everybody, not uh, to you, but to everybody. Um, the, The folks who've said, you know, we aren't all created equal and the social order given by God means some people get to decide for everybody else. This isn't new right? I mean, the British thought it in the 1700s. The slave power thought it in the 1800s. The robber barons thought it in the 1900s. And we have people who are pushing that same stuff today, and we've beaten them every time. And we're going to beat them again. It's going to take all hands on deck. It's going to take an enormous amount of work. But none of us is, is a, you know, incapable of that work. We're as tough as the people who came before us And you demonstrate it in your writing all the time and what you choose to write about and in your writing, Kira. And everybody listening, you can do it, too, in your own way. So, um, again, I really appreciate your coming on and your sharing your good work with us. And I know it will continue in this magnificently important year to come.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Edwin.
1: Take care. You're
0: listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: All right, everybody, for, uh, wow, a couple of years now, I've uh, been lucky enough to be talking with Sam Levine. He is the Guardian's Guardian of Democracy. He covers voting rights, elections, and legislation that impacts the strength of our democracy. And he's back with us today. Hi, Sam.
5: Hi Edwin, how are you? Thanks for having me again.
1: Good. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving.
5: I did. Thank you.
1: Um, and recharged for what's going to be a crazy
5: year. Hey. Yes, gearing uh, up for next year.
1: Yeah, let, let's start in the I don't think they'll ever learn category. So let me ask you about Republicans who sit on election boards and 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 continue to sort of refuse to certify results in the last election. And I think um, sort of offline we've talked about this happened, you know, there were fusenics in Arizona and also some in Georgia. What can you tell us about that?
5: Well, in Arizona this week, there was really huge news that the Arizona attorney general indicted two county supervisors in Cochise County who refused to certify the 2022 election. And they were eventually forced to do so by the secretary of state. But the attorney general indicted them this week on charges that they were interfering with the certification of elections. And it's a really important case because I believe it's the first time that local officials have been criminally charged for trying to block the certification of elections. And something similar happened in Georgia. More recently, there were local officials in the metro Atlanta area. This was all reported in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that refused to certify the results of local races, bringing up baseless claims of, you know, issues with the machines um, and things like that. And, you know, this is a concern that we sort of saw play out in 2020 again in 2022 of these local boards that have enormous influence over the certification process. This is just sort of officializing the election results can hold that up um, and have wide ability to slow that that process down and i think there's concern that in 2024 as donald trump and and allies continue to claim that you can't trust the results of elections that these boards will continue to do that
1: so far however they've had no um, fundamental impact they've slowed things down Maybe a few days, but they haven't—they haven't been able to stop um, uh, an election from being certified. Uh, is that right?
5: That's right, Edwin. There hasn't been any of these efforts that have successfully stopped the certification of election. And what we've seen in many places is that when. Uh, a board holds us up that the secretary of state or the attorney general or private parties will often sue and go to court and force the counties to, to certify the election.
1: And and now I guess for the first time, as you just told me uh, in Arizona, um, there's a criminal uh, penalty that could hang over these guys.
5: That's right. And I think that, The thinking there is that, you know, this serves as a deterrent um, for other local election officials um, who might be thinking about this, who might be inclined to try something similar. The attorney general is saying that there will be consequences, that um, there will be a penalty if you refuse to follow your duties and certify these elections. I think this is very much a warning shot um, to other officials who might be thinking about this and a way of, of holding these officials in Arizona accountable.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I, again, this is in the they don't ever learn category, but while I, it, to me it feels like after you know several years of a concerted attack on elections and on, on our democracy, the democracy is fighting back and trying to protect itself. Um, and these guys haven't gotten away with it. They're still trying. Um, but now they're criminal penalties. And um, and I, 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 I mean, it'll get worse until it is over. But I think we're um, fighting back. In the same well, category, we're, go ahead. Sorry, Sam.
5: Well, I was just going to say, Edwin, that I think the story of the last year or so has really been the hunt for accountability in election denialism. And, you know, for the first time since the 2020 election, we really saw mechanisms springing to life to try and hold actors accountable who tried to overturn the election. So, you know, we see that in Georgia with the wide ranging criminal case charging Donald Trump and his allies to try and overturn the election. You see that in Jack Smith's case in the election interference case. You see that in this case in Arizona, um, holding the, the county supervisors uh, accountable for refusing to certify an election. And you see that in Michigan, where, you know, the, the people who served as fake electors are also being criminally prosecuted by the attorney general. And I think this is really to ensure that there's no moral hazard for these people, that they really understand that if you do this, um, if you undertake these kinds of efforts to subvert democracy that you will be held accountable um, in, in a criminal context
1: yeah um, uh, not in every state yet for sure but um, <clears throat> i think it's a i think it's a hugely positive step um, but but i mean again in the same category but where the results are had to be, where the accountability didn't come from government, but came from voters. I mean, what do you make of Virginia admitting that it wrongly purged thousands of voters before the people who, you know, went on to purge them went on to lose their legislative races there?
5: Well, this was a, a really significant issue in Virginia in the lead up to the elections um, at last month in November. And, you know, this is something that I think was a huge embarrassment for the state of Virginia. You know, for months, the state had said that it was correctly removing um, people from the rolls who had a felony conviction and then abruptly reversed course and said that actually – um, you know, it it had erroneously moved people who, who should have been eligible. And, you know, I think the state did everything it could to uh, try and fix that error before the election, but it was, you know, in the lead up to the election, it was in the final weeks of the election. And when you see an error like that happen so close to an election, it's really, really um, concerning. And I think it really shows that, States are disorganized when it comes to these you know, important um, matters of, of keeping their, their voter rolls organized, and um, to, to remove an eligible voter um, from the voter list through no fault of their own should be a five alarm fire for any state. Um, and you know, I think that it's a huge, huge embarrassment for the state of Virginia. I mean, one one, one thing we often hear from people who are concerned about voter fraud is they say, well, you know, even one illegal vote is is too many because it dilutes the influence of of a legal voter. It, It cancels out the influence of a legal voter. And, you know, I think we should apply the same scrutiny to people who are eligible to vote who are wrongly prevented from voting. You know, one Eligible voter who's wrongly blocked from voting should be just as outrageous as uh, someone who's ineligible to vote getting to cast a ballot.
1: Yeah. So, so your sense is that it was not a partisan um, effort to purge voters, but it was just a, um, uh, a matter of
5: competence, Yes, I think all the reporting that we've seen, and there's been really excellent reporting from Virginia Public Media on this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has has shown that it was an administrative error, and the Department of Elections um, in, in Virginia just refused to admit that they had made a mistake in the lead-up to the election. I was reporting on this, and they refused to even say um, the extent of the problem. You know, in the beginning of October, they said, oh, it's only a few hundred voters who are affected. And then three weeks later, in the final week of the election, they said, actually, mm-hmm. it's thousands of voters who have been affected. And I think that is more about bureaucracy and um, just a significant error. Um, but there's no evidence that this was a partisan. OK, good. Um, effort.
1: Good, good. Who's responsible? Who's who appointed these guys? Is it a bipartisan? Is it.
5: Well, in Virginia, the Department of Elections, I believe, is an appointee of the governor, you know, so it's a um, yep. political appointee. And the, the specific issue there involved data sharing between the Department of Elections and the state police um, so it was government you know agencies who who were responsible yeah. okay
1: all right let let me ask you the same question about ohio where um, there they you know i mean election rolls are normally purged of people who are no longer eligible to vote but they delayed purging the vote for a for an august election where they wanted as many people to vote as possible to perhaps change the rules on changing the Constitution. And then they engaged in a purge during the last election where they were voting on a constitutional amendment on abortion. What's that about? That sure doesn't feel normal to me.
5: Yeah, Ohio has been very aggressive in the way that it removes voters from the rolls. There was a case that dealt with its its process that went all the way to the Supreme Court a few years ago. The Supreme Court upheld Ohio's process. But, you know, anytime you have an effort to mass remove voters um, anywhere close to an election, um, you know, I, I think it should be looked at with a lot of scrutiny, you know, under federal law, you can't um, remove voters within a 90 day window close to a a, a federal election. You can't conduct a mass removal of voters in that window. And, you know, in Ohio, they've said that, you know, the the timing of the purge was related to the timing of elections. There wasn't really um, a time, a good time to do it. But I just think that anytime you have an election approaching, you should be extremely careful about undertaking, um, you know, a- any kind of mass removal of voters. And I think in Ohio, you know, the suspicion of that was just exacerbated by the fact that, you know, like you mentioned, Edwin, when the, the elections this year dealt with highly um, controversial issues. The um, Ohio passed a referendum to protect abortion rights in November um, and the Secretary of State who oversees elections in Ohio was very um, closely involved on the political side of, of that campaign while also administering the election. So I think that's why it drew a lot of, of scrutiny in Ohio.
1: Yeah, should have. I mean I, I it's a complicated message that those of us who believe democracy want to send, which is that you can have the most contentious, most painful um, public conversations and ask citizens to vote and still have a fair vote. Um, But that means you have to prioritize having a fair vote over the outcome if you're on one side or the other. And, And in these past few years, many of us have felt that the MAGA crowd, whether that's Frank LaRose in Ohio or Donald Trump trying to get back in the White House, no longer prioritizes the democracy over the uh, over the result. That's why they're willing to say, "Hey, those elections don't count if we don't win." Janet Protasiewicz doesn't get to be a Supreme Court judge. Maybe we'll impeach her, even though she won. Now they backed off there in Wisconsin, right?
5: That's right. In Wisconsin, there was chatter about removing Janet Protasiewicz, who won. A, state, a seat on the state supreme court in April by 11 points. She's a liberal-leaning judge, and and her victory flipped control of the supreme court um, to liberal control. And um, you know, before she even heard a case, Republicans in the state legislature were talking about impeaching her because of comments she made on the campaign trail about gerrymandering saying that the maps in Wisconsin were rigged. And, you know, they said that she had prejudged the issue before it even came before the Supreme Court. But, um, you know, Republicans backed off of that a little bit after studying the issue. And there were some conservative Supreme Court justices who advised the Republican speaker there that there is no grounds for impeachment. So they've they've tamped that talk down a little bit.
1: And now that court is hearing a case on the maps, right?
5: That's right. The Wisconsin Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a very important case challenging the state legislative maps in Wisconsin. These are the maps for the state assembly and the state senate, um, which are considered the among if not the most gerrymandered maps in the united states and just to give you an idea of how gerrymandered they are um, in the wisconsin assembly republicans have not gotten fewer than 60 of 99 seats since 2012 when they, they redrew the maps and they've gotten around half sometimes less than half of the statewide vote so they're translating you know, 45, 50 percent of the statewide vote into almost two thirds of the seats in the state legislature. There's almost it's basically impossible for Democrats to ever get anything close to a majority in the Wisconsin assembly. And yeah. I'm... this. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. keep going. And, and this challenge at the court is taking sort of a very narrow challenge to the maps. It argues that many of the districts, I think it's 75 in total in the state legislature are non-contiguous. They're sort of weirdly shaped and have detached pieces um, that are part of it. And Wisconsin is unique um, in this. There are, it has far more non-contiguous districts than, than any other state. And the Wisconsin Constitution says that state legislative districts have to be contiguous. So the challengers are saying that the maps need to be redrawn based on on this problem.
1: Now, um, a few years ago, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that their legislative maps were unconstitutional, and the legislature ignored them. And we'll get back to Ohio in a second. Um, But in Wisconsin, the law is different. Am I right that if the Supreme Court... Rules that the maps that the legislative process failed on the maps, the court itself can draw new maps. That's a or order or order somebody else to draw them. So so there's a there's a chance that um, unlike in Ohio, the court actually has the power to make a difference.
5: That's right. In Ohio, there was a constitutional amendment passed dealing with. Redistricting that specifically did not give the Ohio Supreme Court the power to draw maps. And it produced this sort of deadlock where the court kept striking down the maps and then the legislature refused to draw ones that were constitutionally compliant. Wisconsin is different. The Supreme Court um, has signaled that it has the power to draw a map. It is not going to hesitate to appoint a nonpartisan special master to help it draw the maps. And so, yes, very well could wind up um, producing its own map.
1: Now, um, I, I view that as good news, but uh, back in Ohio, um, uh, we have a phenomenon like we have in the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not really good for the rule of law. You change the members' um and, and a ruling that was made, you know, like six months ago gets overturned, even though no laws and no facts have changed. Um, they changed the law so you could run as partisan candidates for what had been a nonpartisan Supreme Court. Um, and Republicans won. And I believe this week, uh, they reversed the decision on the constitutionality of those legislative maps saying, hey, you know what? They were wrong before. It's actually perfectly legal to have drawn the maps we've drawn. Is it, do I have that right?
5: Yeah, there was a the Ohio Supreme Court until this year was four to three Republican. And there was a, a Republican justice, the chief justice, actually, Maureen O'Connor, Who was sort of a swing vote and had been voting with the Democrats, um, to repeatedly strike down the maps in Ohio. And she had to retire because of the mandatory retirement age for, for judges in Ohio. And, you know, a a different Republican replaced her. And the new Supreme Court has been much more sympathetic to the maps. They've upheld the, upheld these maps that, that um, are clearly still very distorted in favor of Republicans. And it's a very clear example of how a change in personnel um, yeah. on a court can result in totally different outcomes.
1: So, the optimism we had in the beginning when we talked about how the country's beginning to defend itself against folks who are who are either not certifying elections or just, you know, otherwise interfering with the workings of democracy. That's not happening everywhere, even in the country. That, in case in point would be Ohio. Hey, um, Sam, are there any other uh, significant issues in states that we ought to know about as this year ends?
5: Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, one other thing I think that's worth mentioning is that in Ohio, you know, because of this you know disaster with the litigation over the maps, there is now a push to strip lawmakers entirely of their power to draw maps. Um, they are trying to get a measure on the ballot in 2024 that would create an independent commission to draw maps and we've seen in places like Michigan um, that a switch from the legislature to an independent commission can produce maps that are much more competitive, that are much more balanced. Um, And um, I think that would be a a sea change in in Ohio if that were to pass.
1: Yeah, at the um, end of the day, it's the voters and the people who are going to have to save it. Um, and, um, you're really right to point that out. Hey, Sam, you know, I, I don't think Americans like cheaters. I just don't. And I think that, um, we've seen an election after election. The GOP has not done very well. And I think in part, I mean, obviously they're, Abortion is a big part of it, but also reporting like yours, reporting that sort of takes all of us deeper into the way that democracy works and the way radically gerrymandered legislators have tried to game the system to stay in power. Um, So I I think it's just really, really important work that you do. And um, uh, it's having an impact. I mean, when you're an old man, you're going to be able to look back and say, wow, I did this to help save a great democracy. It's pretty incredible work, Sam.
5: Thank you, Edwin. I really appreciate that. And I do continue to think that it's one of the most important stories in the country today. Um, yeah, me too. And <laughs> I'm going to continue to cover it uh, as best as I can.
1: Well, look, so we've talked about what's going on in the States just now, but there is, we ought to talk about Washington j- just a little bit. There's some stories there. Um, uh I guess I want to uh, start by saying, look, th- this year, the chaotic House majority entrusted an unknown backbencher, Mike Johnson, to be the Speaker of the House, one of the most important jobs in government, second in line to the presidential succession. Um, and, you know, the House has an awful lot to say about uh the elections, as we found last January 6th. Can you remind everybody about um, uh, Mike Johnson's uh, role in the last presidential election?
5: Mike Johnson was a virtually unknown congressman at the time of the 2020 election. And it emerged afterwards that he was one of the key architects in Congress of of developing a legal strategy, of developing the rationales for trying to delay certification and trying to overturn the election. Most critically, he helped organize um, an, an amicus brief of many members, I think the vast majority of the Republican caucus in the House, to sign on to an amicus brief that supported a lawsuit at the Supreme Court seeking to overturn the election results in key swing states and he helped devise arguments that were used to try and object to the election results this idea that there was uncertainty and that you know that justified the need to to object to certification and you know what's been reported is that you know he, the legal arguments that he came up with sort of gave cover to Republican members of Congress who wanted to object to the election results but didn't want to sound fringy and crazy. You know, it sort of gave this legalese um, aura of, of that there was a, a reasonable uh, way to uh, to object to the election results.
1: Okay, so um This unknown guy tells his colleagues and gets almost the entire Republican delegation to sign on to disenfranchising millions of voters in a handful of states um, in order to cheat on an election. And for that, he's rewarded with uh, elevation to the speakership. Um, Does that worry you as much as it worries me?
5: (laughs) Well, I think one thing we saw, not just with Mike Johnson, but in the other you know, candidates who were running for speaker was, you know, many of them supported um, overturning the 2020 election. They expressed no regrets about it. They, you know, didn't attempt to hide it. You know, it's very clear that this idea that they were justified in objecting to the 2020 election results, that that. Um, the election was stolen. You know, this this has become orthodoxy in the Republican um, party. Mike Johnson, even since he became the speaker, has has not backed away one inch from his his position. So it's it's very clear that this has become a not even a controversial uh, position in the Republican party. Yeah, um,
1: uh, what? powers. I mean, we changed the Electoral Count Act, thank goodness. What, is, what mischief can um, he cause as we go into the next election?
5: Well, there are a couple things. I mean, one thing is is they've made it, the changes to the Electoral Count Act, like you mentioned, have made it harder to um, object to election results. But You know, the House still does have to certify the election results. And, you know, a a speaker who believes the election was stolen um, could move very aggressively to try and block um, the certification of the election results. Um, You know, the House also has broad investigative powers. We've seen this with numerous investigations, whether it's, you know, the Benghazi investigation, the the. January 6th investigation, the investigation right now into, you know, Hunter Biden and, you know, a speaker who wants to um, raise alarms, raise, uh, you know, overplay fears about voter fraud, could launch, you know, investigate, use the investigate, investigatory power of the House to, to raise those concerns. Um, And lastly, you know, the House has the power to decide whether or not to seat its own members. And if, you know, there's a close margin in a race or, you know, there are claims about fraud, um, we could see the House start potentially objecting to having certain members um, seated. So he he wields an enormous amount of power, um, and it's definitely something to watch for um, after the 2025 elections.
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually thought Nancy Pelosi should refuse to seat the entire Ohio delegation until they ran on legal maps. But, um, you're, you're right to point out that that power can be enormously abused. Um, and, um, well, they're going to use it today, I think, to throw a member out. You and I are taping, um, Friday for airing Saturday. Um, uh, I think they may throw out a member of Congress today, Republican. Um, I nice. not today right. the day they vote? Right. Yeah. So, right. um, I mean, and and that just seems to me that the Republicans have agreed that this is not a candidate they want to have on the ballot in the next election for sure. Right. Um, well, Sam, um, this is a, this is a, as the year, this is like the last time we're going to talk this year. So you, you've said that this is the year that, um, uh, we begin to hold the election, um, interferers deniers whatever we call them the folks who are um undermining the integrity of elections we begin to hold them accountable um but clearly we have states where that's not yet happened um and we have still have states like Florida where they're intimidating voters and doing all kinds of things that um uh, are frightening um So it'll be really interesting to see in this fight where we go next year. I'm an optimist, and I think Americans love their democracy and aren't going to let it get undermined beyond a point where they think it's just not fair. So we'll see. But your your reporting is key to it. So I just can't say it enough as the year ends, how grateful I am that these stories are able
5: to be told. Thank you, Edwin. I really appreciate that. And like I mentioned, going to – be continuing to cover all of this extremely closely um, through the elections next year.
1: Yep. I look forward. I look forward to our continued conversations. Uh, Thanks so much, Sam. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Edwin. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay. Alrighty. Uh, I hope you have a a very uh, happy end of the year and um, uh, some time off to rest because, you're gonna, you're gonna need to get like, like you've never, you know, it, it had uh, worked before in this coming year.
5: It's gonna be crazy. Yeah, it already, it already feels very much underway. But um, yes, we'll be ready for next year. All right, thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Thanks, Edwin. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, let's let's just turn from this, you know, uh, uh, in the weeds conversation about uh, elections and election laws and the undermining of democracy to something even, you know, more in the weeds, but you guys can handle it. Dave Roberts, you've met him here. He's been on the show a bunch. He has a, a Fabulous newsletter of his own called volts he spent you know coming up on twenty years, not twenty yet, writing about environmental policy and the impact of environmental change on the economy and society. His podcasts are terrific and um, uh, Dave, the last time you and I were here, uh, we at the end of our conversation. I think I mentioned the power grid and mm. you said, can we talk about that? And I said, yeah, the next time, <laughs> let's talk about that. So I, you know, you've got so many fabulous and interesting stories um, that people can get from signing up on your newsletter. Um, uh, and even fabulous ones since the last time we talked. Mm. But let's spend a little time on the power grid and help everybody understand it because it's just such an important part of our lives. And And it's related to how we're gonna grow our economy. Um, We're gonna be able to bring in cleaner energy sources. You had a great, and forgive me, I mean, this is a compliment, extremely nerdy conversation (laughs) with Astrid Atkinson, which I started and I could not turn it off. It was fabulous. But before we talk about that and data and all that, can you describe for the non-engineers here what the power grid is and maybe even how it came to
6: be? Sure, sure. I think um the best way to think about it is that there are two power grid systems worth thinking about. The first is the what we call the transmission system. And that is, I think, um, a good analogy is like the interstate system. Those are the big trunks that carry power a long distance, basically. Usually from – I mean traditionally from a power plant that was located – out in the sticks somewhere to a city, uh, and so those are uh, high voltage long distance lines, and then there are is the distribution system, which is the more familiar low voltage um, lines that carry power to your house. so the, the, when, when you look around in your neighborhood and you see the poles and wires, that is the distribution system. So so the, the the old model, you know, uh if you go back about 10 20 years, the model that had been in in place more or less for a century is, you know, big power plants generate energy, the transmission lines Carry them to load centers, and then um, you know the voltage gets stepped down because it's very high voltage in the transmission line. And then there's these transformers that step down the voltage to a more appropriate level for local use and dump it into the distribution system. So that you think of like the like you get a, uh, an exit off the interstate into a, a local network of roads. So that's the transmission system in the distribution system, and and it all worked pretty well for. <laughs> A long time because, you know, the demand is all on the distribution side, the houses and buildings that need power. And so grid planners just had to sort of estimate demand in those distribution centers and generate as much power in the big power plants as was needed in the distribution uh, areas. All very neat and relatively simple. But what's happening these days, of course, and this is kind of a little bit what you're referring to, is that there's a lot more going on on the distribution side right now there are people generating energy on the distribution grid and that's what you know the the, the solar panels there are people storing energy on the distribution side through batteries through EVs and and home batteries there are people charging uh, electric vehicles which makes demand a lot less predictable so demand is getting much less predictable there's more generation coming out of the distribution side and so basically we need to rethink the whole grid and how it works and how it's prioritized
1: yeah i mean i i I, um even in your in your old school when it worked pretty well we had issues like hot summer days where suddenly they had to find ways to get a whole bunch of new peak power because we were using so much more of it than they than they were ready for so the the the, the system has to adjust in real time to the demands of consumers. And now right. there was no
6: there, me- was no there was no there was I mean, if you think about like any other product, you can ship it, you know, from the from the manufacturer to a warehouse where it sits yeah. stored until you need it. And then you can drive it to where it's needed. Electricity up until very recently could not be stored at any kind of appreciable Scale, so you had to be generating it exactly when it is being consumed, and the generation yeah. and the consumption had to be matched exactly, second by second, throughout the day. They yeah. still do. It's sort of a it's it's a marvel that the thing works. Like it's truly and, a miracle. It's the biggest, most complicated machine that we've ever built.
1: And just so people understand it, when a snowstorm knocks out power to places, that's almost always. The distribution, not the yeah. long transmission lines that, that end up blown down, right?
6: Yes, yes, that's true. It's snow on lines and 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 trees falling and, and, yeah. and things of that nature. So, but one, I mean, something interesting that you referred to is the old school way, the way that was you know sort of standard up until just a few years ago, was. Um, you had to build enough power plants to satisfy the maximum amount of demand that might ever come online so if you think of demand as kind of you know it like spikes in the evening when everybody gets home from work and turns on the TV and starts cooking dinner and so you take that peak that that the highest peak of possible demand and you have to build enough power plants to satisfy that peak so consequently you have a lot of power plants that are just sitting around idle <laughs> Most of the time waiting for that peak of demand and then they crank on to satisfy that peak. Those are called peaker plants. And so another cool thing about today's grid is we're getting much, much more adept at moving demand rather than moving supply. So you can take some of that demand in that big spike period and move it somewhere else. So the demand – where demand is lower. And you can sort of um, reduce those spikes, level out those spikes by by manipulating demand. And then if you have – if you don't have those spikes, you don't need those peaker plants, right? So you, so you can reduce – in a sense, you can make the whole system more efficient by evening out the sort of demand curve.
1: Okay. So but this is the part that I, I just really want to make sure everybody listening understands – this is going to affect your life. So you, you have gave something about like, OK, now we can we can, uh, you know, play that game with the ball and the cups moving demand around. But that, you know, <laughs> I hope you know where it is. Um, that's complicated. And yes. as you heard just a few seconds ago, we also now in our own houses, many people are actually now producing. So a system that was never designed to be producing, only consuming is now producing as well. All of this is complicated,
6: really complicated. Yes, and and another thing to throw on there, number one, it's getting much more complicated, right? Because the the old school way was sort of a one one direction, right? You you produce it, the big plants, dump it into the homes, easy enough. Now it's bi-directional. The homes are sending power back out. They're storing it and waiting to use it later and sending it back out. So the whole thing's gotten more complicated. But also, at the same time, we are – In the process of beginning to double or triple the amount of electricity we use, because the big part of decarbonization, a big part of tackling climate change is A, cleaning up the electricity system so that it runs on um, um, low carbon energy, and then B, electrifying everything else, taking everything that used to run on, you know, combusted fossil fuels and moving it over to electricity. So, for instance, Vehicles, cars, right? We're moving all our cars over to the electricity system. We're, we're moving all residential and commercial building, heating, and cooling. We're going to move all that over to electricity. So we're just going to need a lot more electricity. So we have to make the grid more sophisticated and more intelligent at the same time we're growing it by 2 to 3x. So it's a very yeah, big not deal. Just,
1: you, we're growing it, I think, exactly the way you discussed by sort of moving to physics from chemistry, right? Leaving the, the fossil fuels in favor of electricity. But we're also inventing whole new things that use power like, oh, I, I don't know, all the data centers around the world yeah, yeah. that or didn't crypto, exist a few years or ago.
6: Crypto's using or crypto, yeah. quite a bit. And, and yeah. pretty soon we're going to be needing to desalinate Water on a, on, yeah. on a large scale, that's going to require a lot of electricity. We're going yep. to be making clean hydrogen for a bunch of reasons we can talk about if you want to. But we're going to need a bunch of clean hydrogen. And the way you make clean hydrogen is with clean with electricity. So we're just yeah. going to need a lot more clean electricity. And in fact, you know, right now, electricity is about 20, 25 percent of the total power we use. It's going to get a lot closer to 80 Ninety percent, which means the grid is going to be central to all economic activity in a way that is new. Yeah. So it just needs to be. Everybody needs to be aware of it, right? We well, which it, is why needs a I lot of. Work.
1: have this conversation because I'm I'm actually worried, right? I live in a state that's where the where um where the uh, industry, the power industry, is highly regulated. Right. So every year they say, oh, we're going to have smart meters and we have to pay more for them. But they turn out not to be that smart. Um, <laughs>
6: you yeah. know, I mean, and, and, all of this right? has to go through the I mean, you're you're getting at, I, I would say two of the central problems facing this grid problem that we're talking about. One is um, NIMBYism, people not wanting to build anything anywhere near them. So it makes it difficult to build things. And two is. The entities in charge of electricity are utilities. And utilities are, (laughs) let's just say, not well known for being nimble and innovative. (laughs) And, you know, they're not like they've been a sleepy, very, very predictable, very easy industry for about a century now. And then all of a sudden we're coming to them being like, Time to transform everything and make it smart and digital and two way bi directional, you know, like, and, and we need to, uh, uh, change the way we charge rates and change where and how we generate power. Like they're being, there's a lot of demands on them all of a sudden. So utilities are very much scrambling and they're not, yeah, I'm, you know, they're I'm not, really they're not worried
1: great. About that. I mean, they're, they're, the system, the, the system is a dinosaur and it's old. all so the, the design and the architecture is, it is not, the arcade, you would not design the system this way if you were starting from scratch.
6: It's much more right? analog than than systems that we are familiar with today. Like we think of the internet, we just think of like packets of information, yep. you know, being manipulated in this digital way. The, the, the electricity grid is much more analog than people would imagine. There's a lot more of like… People throwing switches and and people making phone calls to other people to tell them to throw switches. They're just a, it's just a lot more low tech than I think people probably imagine.
1: Right. So so and it's lower tech, I think, in distribution than in transmission. Um, but I could be wrong about
6: that. Well, uh, uh, there are there are, are tech advancements happening in both on both sides for different reasons like uh, in transmission now we we have new conducting materials and new um you know new designs for electricity towers and things like that they can just get a lot more throughput out of the same sort of like you know you've already got the land you've already got the right of way right you can get a lot more out of existing transmission uh, uh, um, corridors. There's a lot of work going on there. But, yeah, to, to me, the really exciting stuff, the stuff that's like sort of high-tech and digital and futuristic and all that kind of stuff, that, most of that stuff is going on on the distribution side where there's all this, new, all this new activity.
1: Well, okay, so help us understand what some of that new activity is. I mean, look, we, we can't build – enough to double and triple the size of the grid, to have that much more more um, capacity and ability to distribute it and move it around. So we have to make the infrastructure that's already built smarter and more efficient.
6: Yes, I I mean, theoretically, we could just brute force it and just build, 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 build. build, But you might have noticed, well, A, that would be extremely inefficient and extremely not cost effective. But B, also, it's just really, really difficult to build stuff anywhere in the US these days. So insofar as you can get more performance out of the infrastructure you've already built, yes, that's the the priority. And so that's what a lot of people are working on on the distribution side is just – you know just i i you just got to i mean you just got to begin by sort of identifying all these new things that are on the grid so like if a if a if a ev charger if a if a tier 3 ev charger comes online in a certain distribution network that is not like another tea kettle or you bought like a second refrigerator for your basement that's a big big load that's going to be coming on and off and like the distribution manager the the the, the entity that that's um charged with managing that distribution grid needs to know where that is and how it's going to operate and how much power it's going to draw and when. I mean, you would think that's very basic, right? But a lot of this stuff is just coming onto distribution grids more or less out of sight from the distribution utilities. So they're just kind of like to them, all of a sudden, what has been a very predictable demand curve, you know, which they can predict weeks and months, years in advance all of a sudden is like squiggling in very weird ways. It's starting to behave in a strange way. And so there's just – I mean, step one is just better knowledge and transparency of what's happening out there.
1: we got to back up one second. The device you're talking about is like to charge an electric car. Yeah. So like somebody puts one of those – you know, really fast chargers in their house. Gets yeah, the tier really three. Installed. If you
6: imagine, if you imagine like a, a Tesla supercharger, a bank of right. Tesla superchargers, right? Those yeah. things, if like three or four of those are, are going at once, that's like the electricity demand draw of like a small factory. That's not a that's not a small amount of electricity. So you, you know, right. that's that's bigger and more unpredictable than distribution system managers are used to dealing with. So we've just got and, to get more better visibility.
1: And today, that visibility is what? How do they uh, put? Because like, if I put one in my house, I don't. There's nobody I tell. They
6: yes, that's it, that's exactly right. Well, just think about this. You know, the way to think about it is where's the meter? Uh, you know, every home or building, commercial building, has a meter, and from the distribution. <clears throat> Grid manager's perspective, that's all they see. They don't see what's happening behind the meter. Like they don't see, oh, this much of that power demand is, you know, his stove versus his refrigerator versus his heat pump. All they see is how much is this meter. Demanding versus, uh, you know, so, and, and so a lot of this, what they call dis- distributed energy resources. Of course, we have to come up with jargon for everything. All these resources that are scattered out on the distribution grid. They're called distribution energy resources, DERs. Um, lots of those are behind what's called behind the meter. So, right. like, if I put, if I put a solar panel on my house, that's behind the meter. So, as things currently stand, the distribution utility has no visibility into that at all. All they see is the meter. So all of a sudden, I'm demanding much less power from them. They don't know why. They don't know that I installed a solar panel and I'm generating some of my own energy. All they see is that my demand curve all of a sudden goes way down for reasons that they don't know. And, and, and more importantly can't predict, <laughs> right, and, well, so, and and can't plan for because they don't know it's happened. So it's just – I mean, step one is getting a hold of just getting distribution system managers in place that can see all this stuff and
1: try I have it. a terrible question. The meter, the data on the meter, do, do they get that – in anything like real time, or do they still send a meter reader
6: out <laughs> once a month? You Speak, know? I mean, speaking of the system being much more analog than people think, right? Can you imagine? Like they literally – I think that it's still standard in most places. They send a dude out to look with his eyeballs at yeah. your spinning wheel on your meter, and he makes a note – in ink on a piece of right. paper, which he then carries back and presumably, I hope at some point, puts into a computer. But but the whole but but yes, they are now. Um, you know, you mentioned smart meters. The early wave of smart meters was kind of a bust, but they're coming out with new um, new meters that can do much more. To um, a send their information uh, wirelessly, so a person doesn't yeah. have to come look at it, and B will just tell the utility a lot more about. What's happening in data, previous trends. Yeah. like you can you can put computers in them basically, and the, the, you can do a lot of number crunching at that level
1: so the, so initially right um, mostly these meters existed for the purposes of billing right so just they' all it was all standard enough, so it was just here for billing hmm. now these meters have to be um, deeply involved in decisions about how much power to produce and then how to move it around. Um, the system.
6: Okay. Well, they, they they make these um, smart panels now. If you think about your electricity panel on your, you know, in your basement or your garage or whatever, you know, when a when a, when a when a light goes out, everybody's familiar. You go into the basement and you open this this dusty cobweb covered panel and you squint at all the little switches and try to figure out which switch mm-hmm. is the one that, that that broke. That's your electricity panel. They're making those smart now so so not only can they track um, you know what appliance is using what what source is using what, but they can dial back appliances and, and, and move power here to there, so you can say to your you know smart panel um, you know there's a possible blackout they say there's a storm coming, there might be a blackout. Tomorrow, If that happens, you know, deprioritize this, this and this and make sure that this, this and this are still running. Right. Yeah. So it can like manage it can manage power in a smart way and then report that information to the utility. Yes. So that's um, y- you know, we'd like to spread those around as fast as possible. But, um, you know, once again, you when you are dealing with utilities, you get tangled up in this like. Who owns them, right? Is the utility yeah. own those or is that a private company? And if, if it's a private company, our data standards and safety standards – and privacy standards are they are they are they set and who set who sets them like what are those standards and and, and is everybody going to follow the same standards or are we going to end up with a Betamax VHS yeah. Yeah, yeah, issue yeah, yeah. issues all along the way so yeah. it's a, it's a lot of complicated questions to, to, right, to work so out. so Dave
1: you, you and I got a late start and we've run out of time so oh, we're no. going to just have to keep do this again. Because this is just I just so if you're listening, all this conversation is doing for you is letting you understand that the thing you have been taking for granted is rickety and it needs to be completely upgraded in very smart
6: ways. And it's Pretty just inte- it's just intellectually fascinating. It's like a giant it's a giant real time dynamic puzzle that has to be solved instantly at every moment of every day, and uh, and it's changing very quickly. So it's just, yeah. and it's this really is without us getting about.
1: into the regulatory issues that oh around New and locally. I mean, the, so there's a, the, the, at every level, um, this is complicated. Yes, And so I wanted what, to talk to you vital. about carbonated water and iceland. Uh, <laughs> so so um, early in the new be. year, can we do this again?
6: Yes, uh, uh, absolutely.
1: All right. Have a very happy end of the year. And um, we'll talk in January, I
6: hope. Thanks. You too, Edwin. Bye. Take care.
1: All right, everybody, short break for the news, and we're going to turn to the economy when we come back.
0: You're looking at The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD 820.
1: Okay, welcome back. Uh, in the bottom half of this hour, I'm going to take your calls. But right now, Dean Baker is back with us. He is, of course, the economist, founder of the Center of Economic and Policy Research. Um, and he has really been helpful for me, at least, to understand what's going on in our economy. Dean, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me, Edward.
1: So I, I um, you know, it's the end of the year and I want to sort of put the year in perspective. And um, my my wife, Jennifer, is one of the uh, most careful observers of news uh, anywhere. And she's pointed out that this year the news said, oh, the recession is coming. The recession is coming. The recession is coming. And there wasn't much news when the recession didn't come. And even recently, the news said Black Friday is going to be a bust. Cyber Monday is going to be terrible. And it wasn't, you know, a whole lot of correctives when it was actually one of the biggest chopping, maybe the biggest chopping uh, day ever. So I just want to get your sense of where the economy is. You know, people are like, no, the economy is terrible. I don't think that's right. What do you think?
3: I, you know, I, I obviously I hear the same stuff you're hearing, and, and, you know, I look at the data, and I go, okay, um, the data doesn't fit your story. And everyone's saying, oh, but everyone says the economy's terrible. I go, okay, I don't know. I don't know who you're talking to. But, you know, the economy from all the data we have looks really good. Uh, I'll just mention the economic growth number. It came out we had a revised number for the third quarter because they, they revised it every every month, Uh uh, anyhow, that came out as even stronger than the original number. That was 4.9%. That was the original number for the third quarter that came out in October. Now it's 5.2%. That's off the charts. Again, quarterly data is erratic, so we're not going to see that again next quarter. But the point is the economy is growing very strongly. And, yeah, we saw all these projections of recession. Someone uh, There was a Bloomberg story, major Bloomberg story last fall where it said economists say 100% chance of recession in 2023. Well, we've got one month left, <laughs> and, and I don't think we're going to have a recession this year. Now, anything could happen. Anything could happen next year. Something could, you know, be, you know, but we have, we've had strong growth. And, and again, I have people say, well, people don't care about GDP growth. They don't see that. And I think that's right. But what they do see is do you have jobs? And the answer is yes, we've been creating jobs incredibly rapidly. Um, last month was considered bad, 150,000. The Fed will tell you that's probably faster than the economy could sustain. I mean, we could have an argument over that, but they, that's still considered a fast rate. It was 250 the prior month. That's been the average for this year. We've been creating jobs very rapidly. The unemployment rate's been under 4% for 21 straight months. We haven't seen that since the late 60s. And, again, getting to people's pocketbooks, real wages. Wages have been outpacing inflation throughout this year. We know they fell behind last year with this big burst of inflation associated with the pandemic. Everyone had that. you know. And, again, it's one of the things that drives me nuts that you go, we had a pandemic. There's a worldwide pandemic, worldwide burst of inflation. We had it here, too. It's now under control. We have the lowest inflation Japan. I think is a hair lower, but we have just about the lowest inflation of in any major country. Wages are outpacing inflation. A lot of things going in the right direction. And, uh, you know, people tell me, oh, you know, people are struggling to get food. There are, you know, it's we have 20 percent of the population or thereabouts, about. They're struggling. That was true before the pandemic. It's true now. It's horrible. I mean, I'm not minimizing that problem. But we're not going to realistically make that go away tomorrow. So we could say we have a lot more we have to do. And, uh, you know, I'll give Biden credit. He's tried to do it. He has to get through Congress, which has been an obstacle. But he's really accomplished an incredible amount. And the idea that we should be harping on the negative here, that's not the world that we see.
1: Yeah, people are better off than they were a year ago, and they're better off than they were two years ago. And that's I mean, that's true. That's true of 100 percent of people. It never is. But it's true of the great majority of Americans in red states and blue ones.
3: Yeah. And, you know, again, getting back to what people say, you know, I've had people telling you can't tell people how they should feel. No, people feel how they feel. I can't tell them that. But what I can say is, is this based in the economy or is it based on? Something people heard. And one of the one of the things that really struck me is uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, I saw a poll, one of the reputable polling places. and they, they asked people what their view of the national economy was. And overwhelmingly, like seventy five percent said it was bad. Go, okay. Then they asked them how's the economy in their town, their city or town? Well it's about fifty fifty. So I go, okay, so I believe people have direct knowledge of the economy in their town. They go to the store, they have a job, whatever, they, you know, but they don't have direct knowledge of the economy outside their town. So something other than their direct experience is telling them that the national economy is much worse than the economy in the place they live. And yeah, that would be Fox. <laughs> yeah, well, it's in part Fox, but I think it's also the New York Times and Washington Post and National Public Radio that, that that they've they've been harping on the bad economy story and sometimes literally saying things that aren't true. I've been picking on the New York Times. I obviously, I read it closely. i've Been reading it for decades, but they had pieces saying how hard it is to buy a home. It is very hard to buy a home now. Interest rates have gone through the roof. I think they're they are coming back down. I think they'll go down further, but that does make it very hard to buy a home. But the fact is, home ownership rates are higher now than they were before the pandemic. And that's true across the board. So it's true for for young people, it's true for Blacks, it's true for Hispanics, it's true for families with incomes below the median. So the idea that, oh, all these people have been crowded out of home ownership, that's a story we could tell probably for the last year when mortgage rates jumped. That's not a story you could tell about the pandemic recovery in general. It's just not true.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, because I've heard that I've heard that particularly around housing, and that's really fascinating, Dean. That, that home ownership is higher than it was before the pandemic.
3: Yeah, it's, it's standard from the census. It's right on their, their, their website. You don't have to, you know, because a lot of times we analyze the data, we get the micro data, and we have to, you have to do yep. a little work to analyze it. But this is actually printed up, and the the, the, the uh, Census Bureau puts out a quarterly report on vacancy and home ownership and it. Someone could just click on their website and. See, you know, look, compare what the home ownership rate is today to what it was back in 2019 before the pandemic. And again, it's higher in every category. It's fallen a little bit in 2023, which isn't surprising as interest rates have soared. But it's still higher with the most recent data than what we had in, in 2019.
1: So what has so so the economy is doing better than people think. I really is doing better than people think. We're just there's a disconnect there. But now, to what do we owe? The success of the economy. I mean, some of it is in, you know, the hard work to, for instance, that both government and private sector did to um, uh, get rid of the supply chain bottlenecks that showed up during COVID.
3: Yeah. Um, uh, the Biden administration worked hard to try and deal with those bot- bottlenecks, and by every measure, they're pretty much gone. Now, maybe you know, it would have gotten better in any case, to be fair. I mean, we, the, the bottlenecks were partly a result of uh, shutdowns around the world, um, yep. and they were partly the result that people were buying goods rather than services. So during the pandemic, people weren't going to restaurants or movies and were traveling. Instead, they were buying television sets, and were they were buying things, clothes, you know, things rather than right. uh, services, and there was only so much you could, you could ship in a short period of time. Now that the pandemic's behind us, people are doing, they are, going to, to movies and going out and you know, so so that would have gone better anyhow. But but again, they worked to, to straighten that out more quickly. But they also we had these big bills. We had the recovery package that was passed first month Biden was in office or I guess it was the end of February, so maybe a little bit to the second month. And he took a lot of heat for that. He got no Republican votes in either House or Senate a lot of heat for it, including from Democrats. I remember Larry Summers, uh, who was, of course, Treasury Secretary under Clinton and the head of uh, the National Economic yeah, Council no under Obama. Yeah, I can't imagine you yeah, are. Yeah, I'm either. just saying, he, he is a prominent Democrat. <laughs> He's jumping up yes, and down saying, this is the worst. So I'm just saying, Biden pushed this. He had a lot of resistance. And what that did was it got everyone back to work quickly. And it, it just amazes me that this isn't treated as a great accomplishment. I mean, I'm old enough, as are you, and there are a lot of people, to remember the recovery from the Great Recession. Unemployment came down very slowly. We had unemployment yeah. peak at almost 11% in, in 2010, and it took, took uh, well, it wasn't until really the end, just before the pandemic, that we got down to below 4% unemployment. So the fact that he boosted us back to, to full employment Very quickly, that was a huge deal, and it's just amazing. And gets no credit for that. And then on top of that is three big bills that he was able to get through. uh, Two of them bipartisan: the infrastructure bill and the Chips Act, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Again, that was all Democratic votes. But those those have helped keep the economy going and laid a structure for long term growth. That we're going to see the benefits from that for decades to come. Just as, you know, we could look back to, to the yes. New Deal and we have so much of the, the construction that was done under Roosevelt that we still have today, 100 years later almost. And, you know, it's going to be the same thing. He, enormous foot in the door in, in converting to green economy. Again, we have to do way more, but huge, huge foot in the door and then rebuilding our infrastructure. These were huge things. And he really had to fight to do them. And, uh, again, there's always a lot of things that happen in the world that you can't give the president credit for or blame. Jimmy Carter, his wife, of course, just died. You know, a lot of bad things that happened during his presidency. Uh, Again, we can criticize Carter for this and that, but there were bad things that happened that he wasn't responsible for. But in this case, we could point to things that are making a real difference in the economy, a real difference in people's lives. And that will be true for decades to come. And he can't take credit because he stuck his neck out and he did it.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. All right, let me turn to something else you wrote. Um, it was an article uh, that was ostensibly about Social Security, but really, it was about the structure of our economy. Um, and it got me to spend some time with the series that you wrote, How to Unf America. Which I thought was a whole lot of fun, Dean. Will you take a little bit of time and just tell everybody, A, about it and where they can find it if they're interested, but B, walk us through just some of your thoughts about ways that we can make the economy work for everyone in America again. I know Biden is moving in that direction, but you you know, you would have a move faster, and there are things that that uh the country isn't ready to do, but it's important to talk about.
3: Yeah. So the series, this is on uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking, New Economic Theory. So people could go to inet.org, I-N-E-T dot org, and uh, you can Google my name there and I should be able to find it. Um, so uh, it's, I think, a six part series, if I remember correctly. So I'm yep. you have me on tape. So and they edited a lot. So they did, did a good job. But the basic story that I say in this series, and I've written about in several of my books and God knows how many blog posts and whatever else, is, is that we've structured the market in ways that cause income to be redistributed upward. So it, it's pretty well established among economists. People have looked at the data. We've had enormous upward redistribution of income over the last four decades. So we have more money going to people on Wall Street, uh, CEOs, um, uh we have uh, venture capital, um, private equity. There's all sorts of people are getting you know, literally t- millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And we didn't have that sort of story 50 years ago. We had a much more equal economy. And probably the simplest way just to say this is if you looked at the ratio of CEO pay to the pay of a typical worker, you go back to the 60s, it's 20, 25 to 1. Now it's two or 300 to 1. That's a world of difference. And anyhow, what I try to do in this series and much of my writing go, this wasn't something that just happened. So you get a lot of people who just say, well, you know, they might say it's good, they might say it's bad, but it just happened. And the point of that series is, no, it didn't just happen. We have a whole set of policies that underlie it. So one of the things that I harp on a lot, just because I think it's important, and it's uh, in addition to money, it's also people's health. Patent and copyright monopolies, those aren't given to us by God. Those are government creations. The government tells people, they tell a drug company, okay, we're going to give you a patent and we'll arrest anyone who tries to manufacture the drug without your permission. And, you know, in case we have any real sticklers here, no, they don't literally arrest you. What they do is they give you an injunction telling you to stop. And if you keep doing it, then they arrest you. But anyhow, that aside, what that means, though, is that drugs that people need for their life, they need for their health, They're incredibly expensive. Could be tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars for a year's dosage for new cancer drugs. Great drugs in many cases. They save lives. That's fantastic. But what they actually cost to produce and distribute, it's rare that that would ever be more than a few hundred dollars. So in addition to giving a huge amount of money to the drug companies, to the Pfizer, the Merckx, the Moderna's, you've also created this absurd situation when people are in bad health. You're telling them, oh, you have to find a way to, to pay these crazy sums. Now, if you're lucky, you have an insurer, but they'll pick up the tab. But they're not anxious to do that. So they have you see multiple doctors. They tell you you have a big copay. It's absolutely crazy system. So suppose instead we just paid for the research up front. You have to do the research. No one argues that. But you just pay for the research up front, which we actually did with Moderna. We gave them a billion dollars, a bit less to develop the COVID vaccine, which they did. It was a good vaccine, saved lives. But then incredibly, we also said, after giving them a billion dollars to develop the vaccine, we also said, oh, you get control over it, charge whatever you feel like. Kind of mind-boggling. But that's kind of a great example that we created, and this is by Forbes' estimate, five Moderna billionaires on the government's dime. So that's a big area. I'd love to see patents reformed much more role for direct research funding, and then have it in the public domain, just and, and they'd be cheap. We'd get vaccines for four or five bucks instead of they're charging the insurers. Most people don't pay it, but if you have an insurer, you are likely paying 100 bucks for the new Moderna or COVID, the Moderna or Pfizer booster. So that's a really, really big area. Um, I talked about Wall Street. We've Basically, we have these Wall Street guys running wild, getting rich, doing nothing. They're not contributing to the economy. When you have a, uh, have a hedge fund guy that's doing uh, flash trading, that they're, they're trying to get in there um, one second, sometimes a millisecond ahead of the rest of the market because they just got news that um, the, the uh, orange, orange crop is going to be bad this year. So they're going to uh, short oranges or not short, like I guess, long oranges. Well, they're not doing anything for the economy. They're putting a lot of money in their pocket, but they're not doing anything for the economy. Well, we used to have financial transaction taxes. In fact, a lot of countries still do, like England. So not just communist countries or whatever. I mean, you know, it's not it's not some sort of crazy institution. It's a sales tax. You could do that, and you'd put a lot of those guys out of business and basically, I would say, make the financial sector much more efficient. Um, I mentioned earlier the CEO pay, corporate CEO pay. Well, there's good research on this. They're, they're paid. They, there's very little resemblance even to what they produce for shareholders. So I'm not saying, oh, I want corporations to be good guys. I would like that. But but just from the narrow perspective, do they produce the goods for the shareholders? There's a lot of research shows no, they don't. And the reason they get such lavish paychecks is because the people who decide their pay are basically picked by them. They're corporate boards. Who picks the corporate <laughs> boards? Basically, the management. So suppose we had a world where, again, CEO pay was 20 or 30 times that of the typical worker instead of two to three hundred. So instead of getting 20, 30 million, they got two to three million, very different world. The next in line instead of, yeah. And so again, that's rules of corporate governance. That's not, uh, that didn't, one of the things with the uh, UAW strike, there were, (laughs) I forget where I saw this, but they showed the pay of the CEOs uh, at GM, Ford, and Stellantis, compared to the big companies in Europe, the auto companies, Peugeot and Volkswagen, mm-hmm. and then the ones in Japan, Nissan. <laughs> the ones in Japan, they get three or four or five million. And these are big companies, very successful. Toyota's, I believe the biggest auto company in the world, very successful company. The CEO gets five million. Yeah, so, you can live on so five million a year, right? Yeah. You can yeah, live on yeah. five million a year, but, yeah. <laughs> but the CEO of GM gets almost 30 million. So you go, how is that? You know, you're very profitable, very efficient, very, you know, long-standing company. A CEO gets five million. Here they get 30. That's rules of corporate governance. You won't get away with that in Japan. You won't get away with the CEO getting 30 million there.
1: So all of these examples, Dean, and I, I know people are listening and and. You can agree with some. You think some are great ideas. You think some are bad ideas. When you call in later, I, that's not what I want to talk about. I want, but the idea that Dean is, is making absolutely clear is that the economy we have, the so-called free market, is a thing we build, a thing we build with rules, right? And the rules, the rules yeah. affect the outcome. It affects who benefits more and who benefits relatively less, whether it's efficient or inefficient. And some of the decisions we made, particularly when we did globalization in the 90s, turned out to be decisions that benefited a few people vastly more than everybody else. And Dean and exactly. has been one of those guys who's been in the lead of saying, you know what, we don't actually, those aren't the rules. Those aren't the only rules that we could have. We could have different rules and our economy could thrive, but more people could get a share of it. And Biden has said uh, that is what he wants to do, and he started to do it um, in, in, in uh, lots of areas, not the, not the ones you mentioned, but lots of other areas from antitrust uh, to going after junk fees to supporting organized labor. There are all kinds of things you can do, um, but we can't do any of them if we think the market is given by God in a particular structure. Right. We can only do it if we say we get to shape these markets to do what we want them to do.
3: Exactly. And again, I, I, I have enormous respect for the market as is as, as a tool that it's effective in in developing wealth, certainly in the United States in Europe, and Europe. And in fact, is in China. I mean, lots of things we can say about China, but they've seen an enormous increase in wealth over the last four decades because They've tried to take advantage of the market to promote living standards across the country, and they've improved. Yep. They've improved their living standards. So, so you know, we I, I very much like the market, but the thing is, we could structure it any number of ways. It's been structured to redistribute income upward over the last four decades. I want to yep. change those structures to ensure that that prosperity is more broadly shared.
1: Yep. All right, everybody. That, I need you to think about that through the rest of this holiday season. You know, when you're thinking about holiday cheer, think about that we could still have a viable, really powerful market economy, but one that isn't skewed to give all the benefits to a handful of people, right? That that is a holiday gift for everybody to think about, because that's something to fight for. Dean, as always, it's great to catch up. Really great. I hope you have uh, a wonderful year-end
3: planned. Well, I hope so, too. Hope you, as well. hope you have a good one as well.
1: Thank you. All right, everybody, that was the fabulous Dean Baker. We're going to take a break, and you know what's happening next. I'm taking your calls.
0: Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820.
1: Let's get right to it, Paul.
4: Good afternoon, Edwin. How are you? Um, fine, thank you. Let's talk about the economy a little bit more. I I, I want to point something out that that uh, it kind of occurred to me this week, and uh, we, we when we were talking about you know the four point nine percent third quarter growth uh, was a week or two ago, and you said, "Oh, Paul, but it's going to be revised," you know that? Yeah, 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 up to five point two. Now, yeah. here's the interesting part. This is what this this is what this upward revision tells us, that we have been hornswoggled, hoodwinked, snickered, and gouged. Because what is inflation? Well, it's, if market inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods, it's not good for the consumer. And it's not good for the seller because they don't have enough product to bring to market. But wait a minute. Then how do you end up with 5.2% growth? You see, you can't you can't hide it all. We've been gouged. That's what it is. These companies, they this, this is where the growth gets reported, and it's like, oh, uh huh, right. But this really wasn't. Uh, and by the way, the Fed, Jerome Powell, did he stop to think of, to verify is this real inflation or is it just high prices? I don't think he did. It's like, oh, our our one trick, you know, every, to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? Our one fix, our, our one and only, our one pony trick fix is to raise interest rates. So, we look at that and say, the Biden economy is rip roaring from the beginning. And uh, yes, here's in that now. Here's what we're going to hear: you're, you're talking with your guests about, oh, you know, could there inflation come? Well, look, look what or recession come? Well, look what's going to happen. <laughs> here's the funny part: is yeah, we're probably not going to have 5.2 percent in the fourth quarter. So there's one quarter of negative growth, and then if we ever have another one, that another another quarter, say the the first quarter of 2024, is say 4.3 percent. Oh well, you're in a recession, right? So you just had two two consecutive quarters of negative growth, <laughs> but they're really good negative growth, right? Unprecedented. In fact, this economy, when you start comparing to the Trump economy. Which tracked really about the same as second term Obama. Second term Obama is what, that's what Trump basically was riding, and I think this really bugged him, which is why he tried to you know basically uh, put it on some stimulants with the tax cut, and then uh, the the uh, uh, sorry the the uh, tariffs, and what Trump got was one quarter of three point one percent. Now here's, this is interesting is that second quarter of 2019 came in at four, whoa, 4.1% growth. But here's what they said about it. They said 4.1%. That's the strongest growth since 4.2% in the second quarter of 2015. <laughs> so They said um, he deserves a dying, Nobel not, Prize.
1: They said yeah. he, he's the greatest president who ever lived. They're completely yeah, full. Of-
4: also, yeah. But then he also said when when Obama had a 1.9% uh, quarter, he said, anybody who has that ought to resign. Well, uh, after the three point, the adjusted three point one percent second quarter of 2019, what do you think uh, third quarter 2019 was? One point nine percent. Yeah. And then fourth quarter 2019 barely saved him from recession. He got up to two point one percent in the fourth quarter of 2019, and then of course in the first quarter of 2020, COVID hit, and the economy contracted by 31 percent. Yeah. So the Trump economy was nothing but a lot of hot air from this windbag. It always was. Yeah. It always was.
1: Well, well Paul, I mean, I, I, it's no—it's not possible to sustain five percent growth over time. Our economy is too big. I mean, it's an enormous. I mean you know, all this growth is actually compound interest, right? It's growth on top of growth. It's 5% after 4% after, you know, it just keeps getting bigger. I mean, it wasn't that long ago people said, oh, China's going to surpass the US economy. No, they're not, not this way. They're not. I mean, their economy's in trouble and we are soaring. I mean, some of it, you know, um, uh, uh, environmentalists are concerned. Um, some of it is that we're the biggest energy producers in the world. We're the biggest oil exporters in the oil producers in the world. We pass Saudi Arabia. I mean, the, um, there is just almost nothing that we're not making and producing. And, um, um, and now, uh, we are onshoring manufacturing, which is going to be great for Americans, might raise prices a little, but it's going to be, so wages are going to go way up. We're going to have things made here. Um, I just think, um, we're on, we're on a good path, right? And my job, your job, everybody's talking to the American public. Our job is to tell people the truth, right? Not gloom and doom. Everything's terrible. We need to make radical change to everything. There's some things to change, but we are, we are moving in the right direction. And when people try and move us in the wrong direction, like on abortion, we need to kick them in the hind end and fix it.
4: Well, I, the Republicans, the MAGAs will always say, uh, and, and like Trump is wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act again, and it's just, we'll have the best, uh, we'll have the best, yeah, he already said this was his first, first term problem, we'll have the best health care ever, uh, but they never, ever even put a bill up, never even put a bill up.
1: If, they, even, uh, if the, they had a bill, John McCain wouldn't have given the world the big thumbs down and killed their right. efforts to destroy it. But they had yeah, nothing you don't to repeal, replace you don't, it you with. You don't,
4: you don't repeal something without something to replace it with. You can't just pull out the, the leg of the chair or the leg of the table. Well, they wanted
1: to. Over. I mean, here's the thing we need to tell people. They were willing to make 12 million people to take their insurance away and give them nothing in return. They were willing to do that.
4: But, but and they one lined
1: second. up to vote for it, not McCain, but the rest of them. They lined up to give 12 million people a kick in the pants and say, "Guess what? You don't have insurance. You go ahead and be sick."
4: The, the one correction here cool. is that the first, the first three terms—I know it's different era, different time—of the first three terms of Franklin Roosevelt averaged over eight percent growth. That's because the middle class was created finally, and. Yeah, they were also there coming benefit. out of one heck of a depression. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's the thing: is that in, there was an eight point eight percent contraction of the economy after the Great Depression, uh, and Franklin Roosevelt uh, gained it all back in his first term, and then just kept right on going. And not only that, uh, you know, of course, to the to the spoils go to, to the victor go the spoils. We were the, the only man standing after World War II. All of that. But nonetheless, the middle class was created, and the forty years of growth between the time Ronald Reagan or yeah between the Franklin Roosevelt took office and Ronald Reagan took office that saw the curve turn over and start going down. The middle class got smaller. Franklin Roosevelt created the middle class because remember it was only twelve years before uh, Franklin Roosevelt took office in nineteen twenty when more than half the people lived in cities. People were still lived on farms. Yep. they didn't use a whole lot of money. They grew. They ate what they grew. They kind of sub, uh, fended for themselves. Half of the people in America fended for themselves, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt created middle class jobs in the urban areas, and that's that's the middle class that you and I know uh, growing uh, that, our, that our parents had, and that you and I, uh, prof, you know, grew uh, were born into and grew up on.
1: Yep. Well, Paul, as always, thank you. Plug your show before you go. And I got a few more callers, so tell everybody sure. can hear uh, you.
4: Kitchen Table Progressive tomorrow evening uh, on AM 20 WCPT at 6 p.m. immediately following the family meeting. And I going to talk more about the economy and also the polls. And I'm going to explain how you can use some very simple math to figure out when you hear a poll uh, to figure out what you what it really means. Uh, it's very easy math how to use it and and we've been remember last year the webster word of the year was gaslight gaslighting and it it was because the pollsters gaslighted us and now they're still doing it and we like i said we've been hoodwinked hornswoggled snickered and gouged and that with this economy it was all fake
1: all right thank you paul you bet all right george i'm turning to you next
7: (laughs) thank you edwin um Jimmy Carter was mentioned earlier, and I'm reluctant to bring this up because in the wake of the passing of Mrs. Carter and the fact that uh, the president is in hospice, don't wish to speak ill of people who are dying and suffering. But this is a point that Tom Hartman's made a number of times is that Jimmy Carter very unfortunately swallowed the Kool-Aid on deregulation along with Ted Kennedy. And, A lot of working people like me paid a very high price for it. I was a truck driver back in the 80s, working for a solid, well-run company. And by 1990, it was out of business. And like literally tens of thousands of others, maybe hundreds of thousands in the industry, we were all out on the street, scrapping for jobs. And in the aftermath of losing my job, I would go to the local junior college library and read a publication called Transport Topics, which is the Bible of the trucking industry. And I remember something I read in the early 90s very clearly, that of all the freight that was hauled in 1980, it was hauled by 50% of that freight was hauled by companies that were out of business by 1990. I mean, Deregulation has been a complete economic failure. It's a failed experiment We've ended up in trucking, railroads, airlines, with concentrations almost approaching monopoly where only four or five companies are the the bulk of an industry. The same thing is true in banking. And uh, those of us who uh, were on the losing side of this failed experiment, we've had to work twice as hard and twice as long for half as much, and many people have Severely reduced retirements as a result. So I don't understand why a Democratic president and a Democratic senator would embrace, you know, a Margaret Thatcher concept like that when regulated interstate commerce was one of the building blocks of the New Deal.
1: Well, okay, so um, that's a my expertise on the um uh deregulation of the trucking industry is weak. i <laughs> mean you know, I was not old enough to have followed it with the care that i that that um it deserved. I do know that it it caused major disruptions um and we go through these phases right We go through phases where we say um you know we need to regulate and then after a while, we say, well, maybe those regulations aren't efficient or they've got something wrong um, and we need to change them um, or get rid of them. Uh, and th- there's no question, I think, amongst uh, left-leaning economists that, we, um, that just calling it deregulation isn't accurate. Because um, as I had this conversation with Dean a little while ago, deregulation was part of a restructuring of our economy. And it was restructured in a way that no longer favored people who work really hard, favored, um, I'm not saying rich people don't work hard, but but it favored money more than it favored work. And that was a choice people made. And part of that choice was the way we deregulated lots of industries. And what we're trying to do now, George, is to is to restructure, maybe not re-regulate in the same way, but restructure the economy so that the benefits are, are shared. The benefits of the prosperity that, that you and others created are shared with, you know, with, with people who create it more broadly. Um, but really complicated topics. And Larry Summers, uh, I think has been wrong often. Um, you know, one of the leading Democrats, Democratic economists, um, uh, but a big proponent of uh, of a vision of the free market that um, that that benefited a few at the expense of very very many, and you can have a free market that is structured to benefit everybody, and that that's Dean's life's work. Um, but wow, I didn't know that you went through that, and um, um, that's tough. That was a very wrenching change.
7: Yeah, it was um, something that nobody should have to go through. But, you know, I was younger then, and I didn't have a family or dependents. But I work with a lot of grown men, and that's men with a capital N, who were men who were veterans who'd served in Korea and World War II and Vietnam, supporting families and paying mortgages. And from one day to the next, the plug was pulled on our company, and i saw these grown men standing there literally with tears growing down going down their faces not knowing where to go or what to do next and overnight 14,000 people across the country were out of work
1: so yeah dereg- i mean i'm thinking uh,
7: was was deadly literally
1: i'm thinking of you know all this talk about uh, uh, self-driving vehicles and, you know, eventually technology is going to get there and we're going to have self-driving trucking that, you know, drives safely 24 hours a day all over the country. And is and that, that line of work won't be available to people. And, and people who are currently doing it when that happens are going to have a face something awful. Um, and it's really, um, th- these disruptions are, they're not just tragedies for the people who live in them. They, they affect whole communities. They affect, I mean look at small towns across America where people live. It's been just devastating what some of these changes have wrought. Um, and we have not found ways to um, have these transitions be less painful.
7: Well, I think that our lodestone and our North Star should always be FDR and the New Deal. And then we can go from there. But the blueprint was laid out back then, and it's still what we should follow.
1: Yeah, I mean, whatever the to contemporary version is. And, I, I, you know, I'm proud of the president that we have. I think he has um, um, moved America uh, in the right direction, in, the, um, in a direction that's similar to what FDR, I think, would have done if he were president today. You know, Um and we haven't seen that in many years. Um and, and I, think yeah, been... I
7: absolutely agree with you on that. And I, I'm a Joe Biden uh, partisan. I don't want him to drop out. He's not too old. And I give him all the credit in the world for being a Democrat. who's not afraid to say he's for working people and not afraid to say over and over again, he's for organizing unions, something that Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and Jimmy Carter were rather diffident and milk toast about it wasn't but, wasn't it, their, it wasn't what motivated them
1: wasn't wasn't their thing and and here and you know what's really interesting is you know presidents matter wow I mean Joe said um, against some headwinds I'm going to be the most pro union pro labor president we've ever had and an interesting thing happened. Americans who had, you know, had for a long time had a sort of not particularly happy feeling about unions. The polling is that organized labor has become more and more um, respected, uh, thought of positively by ordinary Americans. You know, when there was a, I mean, the the uh, writers strike, the actors strike, the auto workers strikes. You know, whenever, whenever workers' credit becomes disruptive for people, and often unions would get the blame, not this time. The public was soundly um, in favor of getting better contracts for all of those workers. So I think the country is, is moving in, uh, once again to say, hey, look, it's we're all in this together. Can't just be for a few. And we can't ease off on the
7: throttle. We've got to keep... The pedal to the metal in this regard.
1: Yep, I agree with you. Thank you, George. Really appreciate it.
7: <laughs> Thank
5: you, Edwin.
1: You bet. Eduardo, how are things in Florida?
5: Edwin, well, it's um, 80 degrees. Can you believe it in December? But it's not going to feel like Christmas because uh, there's no snow. I used to go to the Chris Crindle Market in, uh, in snowy Chicago. It's going to feel depressed.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's going to be, I mean, it's raining right now in chicago but we've had a little bit of snow it's definitely definitely going to be cold enough
4: yeah 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 well what's on your mind today some more calls here yeah uh china
5: uh, a couple things on china uh there was a report here i saw this on daily mail uh they're running marijuana plants from new mexico to maine and then this complicitors institute gives 17 million to 143 schools uh, I mean, their economy is kind of in uh, shambles. I mean, they're getting the marijuana profits maybe to some of these schools, maybe? Or is it from their homeland? I don't know. What's going on here?
1: So um, the conf- many countries have um, funded organizations that partner with schools abroad. We do it. The Alliance Francaise does it. Uh, the Goethe Institute from Germany does this. There, there are lots of it. And so China said, oh, we can do it too. Um, Um, And they did in lots of schools. And it was to help uh, begin to teach Mandarin in schools in America and to teach kids um, a little bit about uh, Chinese culture um, and maybe even to get them ready to go do business overseas. So it had it had a very legitimate purpose. And then it after it was in all these schools, You know what? Sure enough, we learned that maybe it was too close to the government. Maybe it was involved in some espionage. Maybe it was um, uh, doing things that were beyond its initial purview. Um, And and so some schools kicked them out. Um, The government has um, had a, you know, on again, off again uh, relationship with them. Um, in general, I think these international efforts by countries to say, I'm going to spend the money in in schools in other countries to teach about my culture, to teach the language, to share the food, to talk right. about our literature and our heritage is a good thing. But you can see how, particularly in a society that is not you know, free, that's organized um, as a business from the top, as China is, how those can be used in ways that are – um that raise a lot of questions. But like nobody's yeah. ever said that about the, about the Alliance Française or the Goethe Institute or any of hundreds of, of, you know, foreign, um effort exchanges, um, that the U.S. does in schools around the world. Um, uh, but this one definitely got into some, got into some. Well,
5: hot look hot what out. they did with the TikTok is, I mean, they were trying to do the, uh, tie-in with, uh, the Chinese government with the TikTok. Remember that?
1: Yeah, the, the interesting thing here's the the dilemma. Um, there isn't a separate private sector in China. The you know the Chinese law says that the every com- every company in China, um, you know, the government has a right to everything they've got, and they can go in. And so so from a, from our perspective, we're like, okay, but if we're giving a whole bunch of data, how do we know we're not giving it to spy agencies in China? Right? Um, right. So that's why Chinese companies say, OK, well, we're going to set up an American subsidiary. It's going to be completely different. But in some cases, um, you know, it's a big worry. And it was a big worry with Kauai that the um, not Kauai, the wrong company It was a big worry with the company that makes the routers. Um, that right. Right. I remember using. now. Yeah. But yeah. So. So, so um, I mean, uh you know, either Russians are the best spies in the world. I think everybody still thinks that's true. Um, the Chinese are really good at it too. Um, and, and it's just complicated when, when we are trying to figure out how we can have a relationship with China that is respectful, that says, look, you're, you're a great country. You got, you got a lot of wonderful people in your country, but we don't want you stealing our secrets. You know, and we have to protect ourselves. Right. But we don't know how to do it when you, when you put together a company that, you know what, we want to use because it's a fabulous company. But then you say the spies can have all the data. That's a problem for us. And that's the kind of conversation that, you know, our trade reps and Biden just had it with, with President Xi when he, when, when they were together. It's a really, um, it's a complicated world because the Chinese just have a different view than we have. Their view is, I'm sorry, it's all the governments. It's just all the governments, and yeah. we control it. And if it's good for us, we're going to take it. And that, and then they don't understand when we say, okay, well that's great, but that means we can't like let you know our kids use TikTok. So, so <laughs> that's a complicated conversation, and um, hopefully we're yeah. making progress on it. But I'm glad yep. you brought it up. Okay, well, Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a, you good, bet. Have a yep. good week. Thank you. Yep. All right, folks, we are um, um, closing in on the end here. I will not be here next week. Um, and then I'll be back the week after. Um, I began, you know, today's uh, uh, sh- show with what I think are takeaways from this remarkable year, really remarkable year. And next time I'm thinking about whether I'm going to tell you what we should look forward to in the next year. Right. And this next year, um, I'm going to be calling on all of you. It is it is the time to do the gut check to see if you have in you the steel of the folks who, you know, uh, were the greatest generation, because that's what we are right now. And people are going to look back on the patriots who saved the democracy um, and who. Um, saved it in such a way that the rights that that we have come to think of as American get respected and protected. And um, those who are trying to tear it down, take those rights away, tell us how to think, tell us what to believe, tell us uh, wh- whose votes count, that that is just not the arc of our history and we're not going there. But it is a real fight. It is a uh, an all hands on deck moment. So as this year ends, keep in mind that we have been winning these fights. They're hard. The other side is well funded. They do not play by the rules, have not, um, uh, and certainly don't, aren't uh, bound by reality, <laughs> by facts as, as we talk about them. Um, it's going to be hard. But we've been through hard, and you're up for it. I just want you to think about that. Um, And um, I hope you, if you're up in the upper Midwest, that you are not too cold and wet, (laughs) as I was when I walked my dog this morning. But I uh, look forward to talking to you once again, one more time before the year's out, and we will close out this fabulous year where we've won most of our fights, and we'll prepare for the next one. You take care.